Ah, Look. nice. The gunshot holds no fear, and this is the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies nobody else wants to talk about. This is episode number 30, and my name is Jakob. My name's Nick. And my name is Jack. (laughs) That was very sensual. (laughs) Okay, uh, glad to have you all with us. I gotta say, today we are doing something a little bit special because we are um, honoring the memory of the late, great Tony Scott. In fact, this episode will be released one day after the ninth anniversary of his untimely death. So this is certainly not the first time, by the way, when we ha- we have talked about Tony Scott's work on this podcast. We discussed Unstoppable not too long ago. I think episode 20 it was. And um, also we have recorded a whole show dedicated to, the, to his memory where we talked about True Romance, Domino, Crimson Tide and Days of Thunder which is available on our Patreon over at patreon.com slash clapper.cd where for two bucks a month you get two extra podcasts and one of these podcasts is the uh, Tony Scott retrospective. So there's plenty of Tony Scott talk to delve into if you're into that as much as we are and you should be. And I can promise you this already that this is not the last time we come to, we come back to Tony Scott's work because a good chunk of his filmography falls under the umbrella of heavily underrated bangers. But that's the future. Today, however, we are talking about his 2004 film titled Man on Fire. I'm tough, Creasy. Yeah, no such thing as tough. There's trained, and then there's untrained. And now, which are you? Trained. Trained, okay, let's go again. Stand here near the finish line. Okay, hey. I'm a prisoner in the block until the gunshot sets me free. That's right, don't smile, don't fool around if you want to win. You want to win? Trained or untrained? Trained. Go. Nice to see you. Oh, good to see you, Madre. Um, Peter's parents are away on business in Juarez. I was... Today, you are her father. Man on Fire follows John W. Creasy, played by Denzel Washington, a former CIA agent with a mysterious and traumatic past as he finds a job as a bodyguard to an influential Mexican businessman, Samuel Ramos. Ramos? Ramos, I think. Played by Mark Anthony. Uh, specifically, he is hired to become a personal security detail to his um, young daughter, Lupita. Well, I think short, short Peter, I think she's she's called, played by Dakota Fanning. Um, unfortunately, one day he is ambushed and, wo- and wounded while Lupita is kidnapped for ransom. Things quickly escalate. I don't want to divulge too much right now. Um, and um, Creasy is left with only one path left to pursue, the path of vengeance and retribution. Now... Man on Fire was adapted from a 1980 novel by A.J. Quinnell. Quinnell? 
and <laughs> written for the screen by Brian Helgeland while with Tony Scott directing. In fact, it wasn't the first adaptation of the novel. In 1987, it was brought to the screen with Scott Glenn, Joe Pesci, Jonathan Price, and Danny Aiello, among others, in front of the camera. And if you were to believe Hollywood second-hand rumors, Tony Scott, if, if Tony Scott actually had had his way, he would have been the first one to adapt it in 1983, but he wasn't ca- capable of convincing studio producers it was worth financing because he only had the hunger under his belt. So figure it out. And also, apparently another another little rumor is apparently Brian Helgeland um, also was recommended the uh, Man on Fire 1987 film by none other than Quentin Tarantino when he walked into his video archives sh- shop in 1987 and whatever and asked what, what a good, well, to be recommended a good film and Tarantino just handed him this so that, you know, so there's that. <clears throat> anyway, where was I? Well, the original story was apparently heavily inspired by the infamous kidnapping of John Paul Getty III, itself adapted recently by Tony's older brother, Ridley Scott, as All all the Money in the World. So that's an interesting connection for you to chew on, by the way. The 2004 rendition of Man on Fire was much like a lot of Tony Scott-directed works, and also... And by the way, also Fox first offers this film, first offered this film to Michael Bay and Antoine Fuqua, if you can believe it. So this, yeah, it gets weirder. Anyway, heavily infused with the current, it's heavily infused with the current political underpinnings. I mean, current for 2004. Mexico City was notoriously plagued by kidnappings, and even some of the villains in the film were inspired by and even named after real cartel kidnappers. Um, the film saw Denzel Washington reunite with Tony Scott, having worked together on Crimson Tide before which ignited a long string of their collaborations, such as Deja Vu, thinking of the Pelham 1 to 3, and Unstoppable, which lasted until Scott's death. Ironically, Washington wasn't the first choice for the role, as it was first offered to Tom Cruise, Robert De Niro, Bruce Willis, and I think a few other people who all turned it down, as though it was meant for Denzel Washington in the first place, and the two had to find each other somehow that way. So Man on Fire was... Um, released to a modest box office success and later found its audience on home video, slowly growing its cult status, despite the fact it was slammed critically at the time. Critics in 2004 certainly did not warm up to Creasy's character. They, the overall violence and what they termed as sort of sadistic tone of the latter half of the film and dismissed it as um, schlocky, apotheosis of vigilantism or something like this. So let me ask you this. Were the critics right at the time? And Man on Fire is too dark, too violent and over the top for its own good? Or is it a quintessential cult classic? Or is it a downright masterpiece that the critics simply failed to acknowledge? What is your take on Man on Fire? Who wants to go first? I I can start with this. Um, The critics for me definitely got it wrong at the time. Um, Man on Fire, surprisingly, weirdly enough, I'd say it's a movie that I have a relatively long history with. I distinctly remember, and I mentioned this briefly on the Patreon episode as well, but I distinctly remember um, renting this film when I was very little. It was like nine years old, probably, when I rented it with my parents on this Mediaset Premium whatever thing here in Italy. And we watched it all together as a family night movie. And out of all the sequences in it, the two scenes that stood out to me the most were the kidnapping scene, which terrified me, and the torture inside the car scene. Those, those were just like burnt into my mind. And I didn't watch the movie again for many, many years. And the first time I watched it was actually for the podcast on Tony Scott. I was like, you know what, let's, let's watch it, even though we're not discussing it already. And it blew me away 
and they loved the film so so much this time around that I actually rewatched it today prior to doing this podcast, even though it's been barely two weeks since I watched it. Uh, it's I, I it's for my money, honestly, at this point, this might just be my favorite Tony Scott film. I think it has everything that makes him such a brilliant filmmaker. And it might just be his magnum opus. It has a long runtime that is justified. It actually makes sense for this film to be well over two hours long. It has very tight pacing, excellent character writing. There's so many interactions in here. Like the entire first hour, it's missing. It's very abridged in the 1987 version. And it's something that is missing in a lot of revenge films. Here, it's what actually makes this one stand out from the rest, from just being another action movie where just, oh, it's, it's a revenge film. It's like, take it's like, no, no, no. This is very different. And the action itself, the way it's shot, the way it's edited together, it's unique. Many, many directors try to, you know, like you mentioned Michael Bay, actually, I can see making something similar to this. And he was also aping Tony Scott with his previous movies. But the way it's just made here, it's, it's impeccable. I could watch this movie any day of the week now. And yeah, I, I just love it. I'll go one step further than Nick. I think this is Tony Scott's magnum opus. This is a masterwork of craftsmanship here. I remember when I first saw this film, when I, was, when I was really young, again, rented it from the video store, like most Tony Scott's films. And it was it, it doesn't really hit you at first because at first, when you first watch it, probably when you're quite young, you don't really have the perception of what cinema is. You see it as quite a conventional tale. And it's not something that's either extraordinary or different to anything you've seen. It's not necessarily unique. As I got older, I've, I've reassessed this piece of work and I think it's genuinely a master craftsman at the top of his game. The, the, the filmmaking technique here is second to none in his filmographer. He takes what is a genuinely one of the most quintessential revenge tales that cinema's always known, makes it two and a half hours that it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be whatsoever. This story can be done in an hour and 40, if not 90 minutes of push. He lets to flesh it out, he lets to sink it in. And it's just a haunting portrayal of trauma. I, I'm, I'm trying to write a feature on this film at the moment and watching it last night, I can't put into words how good the filmmaking ability is here. The edit alone is astonishing. And this is a film where even, even with its quintessential story, let's say, with, with its conventional story, how he managed to, manages to make that feel unique in the style of filmmaking. Like you watch it as an audience member now and you just look at it and you think like it, 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 it has a raw emotion to it. It broods. Uh, like I can't give it more enough credit to how he sort of constructs that because people, you, we see this film made all the time now. You know, I, I, I honestly feel like you, you, can, you can look at anyone's filmography in the last five or six years and people attempt to make this film and it feels like all these films end up on Netflix. I mean, how many times you see... Stuff like well, the, the, the Mads Miskelson thing on Netflix. If all these things come out, and they, they all have, or they all want to aim to be Man on Fire. And I, I understand that it's it's a remake. I haven't actually seen the original, um, and I'm glad I haven't. But this is one of my favorite films from Tony Scott. If not my favorite. So watching this again was was most of a privilege. But to see it as someone who appreciates cinema and to see it in a in a wider lens. I honestly cannot put into into words how 
not only fabulous, let's say that's an understatement, but how it processes itself. Like Nick said, that you have the first 45 minutes, which is a character study about a man we don't ever know. And I think when you get to the end of the film, you never know who he is. And, and I, I like that, that aloofness, I like that stoicism, but that's dangerous to do. You couldn't do that in a film now. You couldn't have a, you couldn't have a main lead who you don't know anything about. This film's very ballsy. And it's interesting you said that your opening statement, Jacob, about its modest, modest box of its success, because it didn't make any money. It comes to 2004, which is, again, the beginning of the comic book boom, which we've already spoke about. So it gets lost in translation, I suppose. But um, the second reteaming with the Denzel Washington is a, is a masterstroke. I think this is the film that Tony Scott will hopefully be remembered for as, a, as an icon of cinema. I think that will probably go to Top Gun. But this is a, this is a, a, cold, cold, a cold stone classic, in my opinion. Wow. <clears throat> I mean, in contrast to both of you guys, because I, I suppose you, you came to, to see this film quite early in your lives. Um, I founded this film when I was already kind of on the Tony Scott train right so i was a i was a fan of his after crimson tide and enemy of the state i was really on board with this guy and i and that was kind of okay well i was a teenager so i and i kind of knew already that was like i like the way this guy makes movies this guy tony scott is like you know he's he, he's he's there and um and when i first saw it i mean i liked it a lot but it was kind of it was almost jarring because it's unlike anything he's ever done before. Like if you look, well, maybe The Hunger would be another sort of a, like a standout. Although I haven't seen Revenge yet. I don't know. Maybe Nick, you want to chime in late. I don't know. But um, it's an incredibly mature film. It's very... And um, one thing I wanted to kind of lead on with when, when I was gearing up to, to start talking to you guys today was the sort of my opening gambit for my own impressions was I don't think, because I was trying hard to think about a Tony Scott film that gets worse on a rewatch, and it and I can't find a single example. There's o- there's only one way for 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 rewatching his movies for me, which is up. And this used to sit at like a four and a half out of five for me. And then when we talked about the um, Patreon uh, episode, by the way, you know, subscribe to our Patreon to listen to the four and a half hour discussion on 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 this guy, it's brilliant. But this, basically, when we were talking about our top fives, this basically missed out on the sort of the, on the top five spot. And had I rewatched it beforehand, it I think it would have the top five would have looked a bit different. And I think I mean, it's not like oh something in number five would have been um, taken out. I think uh, well I would have to put it somewhere higher than than just the fifth spot. And I think Top Gun would have to leave the roster um, because it's. For, for a film that's almost two and a half hours long, it cooks, it snaps, it barely ever slows down. I mean, it slows down in, in a few few places for a reason, and for a few places that I don't think there's a good reason for it, but we'll get there in the sort of top three, bottom three moments. So I have to find something. But it's, um, I don't know, when I was looking at the history behind this film, and I'm just saying, this is a, this is a miracle this film actually happened the way it did. And it's... a it's an estuary of this sort of talent because you have you have Denzel Washington who's on absolute top of his game. There's Tony Scott who's just you can see that he's come to his own 
he's an incredibly assured filmmaker is also well, this discovering sort of new elements of style which are kind of just slowly taking over his aesthetic as well because i think starting with spy game and then later on i think it almost crests with domino well as we touched on the patreon episode the sort of jittery aesthetic is kind of there on display but it's it's very purposeful and then you have dakota fanning who's an absolute i don't know she's a singular talent, like the best sort of child actor since tatum o'neill like i kid you not she's just amazing and i think everyone was in awe on set of what she would what, what she was capable of like she was basically an adult trapped in a in, in a child's body in terms of like acting ability and then you have the story that and the character it's beautifully written it's just the, you see these little quirks and nuances like you, you see like well the character of Creasy has these has a past and no one explains like this in I don't know in a bad writer's hands you'd hear about his past somehow someone someone would be laying out like paragraphs of exposition about what he did no one gives a shit like it's it's so like you can you can pause it and see that he was like a SAS or some like ghost recon or whatever like he was some some kind of like top level navy seal or whatever um that you know you, you see these little moments where dakota fanning says oh what are these marks on your hands and he says oh this is birth defects like you know this is like he's been tortured before right like, but this is always left in, to him to be implied it's never sort of explored in um sort of upfront it's amazing that way so so yeah so it's it's an it's an incredibly well put together thriller that has quite a lot of character behind it a lot of soul behind it and it's also aimed which is very rare these days at ex exclusively at mature audiences like it's not for teen it's not to be uh, well there is no teenagers to be entertained in here this is um <laughs> it, this is this is aimed at i, I don't even want to say at, at, at big guys at um, adult men like this is this is that type of entertainment it's no longer kind of um sort of you know explored the in, in hollywood and in, in in such sort of on such scale as, as it used to but yeah it's it's some it's something else entirely and then i think jackie touched on this like this is you know that like films that try to kind of imitate what man on fire does so perfectly are now a dime a dozen and then that, this is something i wanted to kind of ask you now so what um what do you think is the, is the actual main difference? Why is why is this film so successful while where others do not? And then like, let's maybe just compare notes in here and and see where, where it gets us. Well, I'll I'll begin with this right. In in, in your little uh, tidbit there, you use one word, jarring. Now, like Nick, I watch this film. Well, unlike Nick, so I watch this film probably every every year or so, if not twice a year. The the first time I watched it um, yesterday, I watched it. I watched. Excuse me. I watched all of it in one go, and then I rewatched bits of it in a second go this morning, this, this evening, because I wanted to sort of try pick the pick its brains itself. Right? When you describe this as jarring, I think you are bang on. I think it's it's not consciously built that way. I think it's it's an accident. When you watch this film, there are, there are jarring edits in in gaps in timeline here. The whole opening with Rayburn, uh, Chris Walken's character, is incredibly jarring. And then as soon as we get there, we cut to um, Mark Antony's uh, Samuel Ramos. There's like a whole heap of footage there on the on the on the, on the cutting room floor. When 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 he actually gets into the family, everything's fine from that point forward, I think. But there's a massive amount of chunks taken away, 
And again, I, I think it's accidental because I think there's an issue here with, uh, with running time. I think two and a half hours is, is pushing it. Don't get me wrong, but like, like Nick said, it earns it. But there's definitely a conscious decision here of knowing they had something astronomical of size on their hands. Now, I don't know if anyone knows this, but I, I read this yesterday. The film is not meant to end with, with Creasy in the car. It's meant to end with him going to ve- meet the voice and then exploding uh, the house with the, with the, the same material. He did when he put that that um, C four up that guy's ass. That's how the film's meant to end, and he cut it. He cut it off. Well, this would um, have been a bad decision. It's, exactly. it's it's a horrible ending, honestly. Yeah. I watched it on YouTube. So. <laughs> like like there's 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 definitely a conscious decision to to trim this down. That that's that I will I will I can completely sort of agree with that. But there's so much here that's taken away, and I think in a, in a roundabout way that answers your question. I think this takes away the bullshit that we've been enamored with as an audience. Like it's not important what Creasy is. It's not important who Creasy is. It's what he is. That, that's the whole point of this film. It's, it's about the trauma. It's about the perception of how he deals with it. He deals with it when he comes into contact with Peter. He begins to, he begins to grow again from the ground up. It's a, it's a really interesting character study in a, in a film that, that desperately is an action, action film at its heart. It's a thriller. It's just that time that's been given to allow the development, which ironically enough, there's probably another hour of it, hour out of 45 minutes at least of it on the current room floor. It takes, it takes a risk in its edit, but I think it's a very lucky thing to get away with. Because in essence, you could just say, I think that word you said again, jarring, I don't think you'd be able to argue against. But it does, it cuts away the fat and it slim lines something. It's dangerous, but it just did not manage to get away with it. And that leads really to the writing which there's not much really here in terms of depth it's just genuine performance and again like you you said earlier this film rests on one sole performance working and and you can say as much as you want about Denzel Washington I think if you take Denzel Washington out and you put Robert De Niro in I think you still get a very fine film with with any sort of again it's excellent with him in but I think you get a fine film if you do not have Dakota Fanning in that role this film does not work. It rests solely on her shoulders at the age of the tender age of what eight or nine. She is maybe even younger, and she carries the weight of this superbly for two and a half hours. I mean, let's get. She's not even in this film for that amount of running time as well. She's in it what, perhaps twenty five minutes. She, 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 she is. Let's just say this: it works so effectively because ultimately you become like Teresa. We, we, we have very little time with this this person on in this film as he does on this planet. And they have such a wonderful perception, a wonderful sort of charismatic connection with, with character and, and thus the audience. When that's taken away from us, well, we, we, we simply can't cope like Carissa. It, it's so effective how it works because she's so good at what she does. She's tender. She's quick-witted. She has like a fury to her, but, but she has emotional depth. She, she's genuinely fascinating this film. But again... Just to go back to your point, I think the reason why this works is purely for the editing. I mean, the style is another thing. I think I don't think I've seen anything like this before and after. I think Soderbergh had tried to do it with traffic a few years before, um, but this is a film where it takes like a very difficult aesthetic, almost like I don't really want to use a word here that describes it because it might be um, slightly uncouth, but it's it's almost like it's. Um, pedantic let's say 
like there, there's jump cuts, like the editing is incredibly messy. It's something that I like in Domino as well that works effectively for the themes. Here, it's a strange one because this film's about guilt, not about drugs, not about mayhem. This film's about grief, trauma. So it melds very well, interesting in, in its own little way. But I, I think, it, my, my opinion, I don't like you two, but it'd be interesting to know. I appreciate the, 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 the performances, more so Dakota Fanning, who was tremendous. But this film rests solely on that edit. It gives you just about enough to care, but it spends the time on character connection rather than seamless, unneeded depth about who he was in, a, in the Black Ops or who worked with the CIA. And I think a testament to that is the character of Ray Burr. He's in it for, what, five minutes? He comes off with, with the monologues after monologues, perfectly cast by Christopher Walken, gives enough depth. Simple. Say it, don't, don't, don't show it, which is an interesting one because... In screenwriting, it's usually the other way around. So this breaks a lot of rules in that in, in that way. Apparently, all, all scenes with uh, Christopher Walken, by the way, were ad-libbed. Yeah, I mean, it was meant to be with Marlon Brando, but he passed away as well, which yeah. is interesting. Um, but that's where I would come down. I think the editing here, yeah, the, the, just the, the choice to, to cut out fat that's unneeded and still remain a film for two and a half hours is a very cheeky and tricky film to get away with, especially to its, its, its distributor. And I can understand why people were put off about this. But I mean, you look at like Michael Cimino, what I was reading today about The Sicilian, where his contract was 120 minutes and he gave it 150. And he said, no, we need 120. So he went back, cut out all the action sequence and presented it as is. And they, said, and they released it, they had to. And when you look at Man on Fire, this feels like one of those films where 115 minutes is really cutting it close. Because you, you, you think, look at 2004. Like you, you have a you have a Mission Impossible uh, possible film a few years earlier. You have another one after, which is like what one one fifty eight something like that. I don't think it hits two hours. Maybe it does. I don't know. But this film does not justify its two hour and a half hours on paper anywhere. But when you watch it and what it's filled with, it's not action sequences. It's character. I bet this actually traumatised producers. I bet if when they, when they went to set and saw the dailies, I bet they thought to themselves, poor Colonel, what have we done here? Because we've got a film that's two and a half hours, which is character. What? I think it's a very risky film to run that. And I think it works perfectly. I want a dime in the dozen. Again, that's what I say. Like, there's a lot of risks here that have been allowed by Tony Scott, or not, not necessarily allowed by Tony Scott, but being allowed oh. to take... And the hard R rating. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everything that goes against this film is all, is in the film, you know? No action, character-driven. Um, Denzel Washington, who, who wasn't really in anything, he completely... Insane violence. Yeah, I mean, he contemplated quitting acting as well. He was bored of the whole yeah. regime of it. Tony Scott, who wasn't particularly known at that point to make box office successes. It's two and a half hours, you said about the, the rating. There's a lot going against this, and it, just, it managed to just push everything aside and make a really compelling feature, which I think is, I mean, look at World War Z, for example. You can throw money at it as much as you want. If you don't have someone who appreciates the, the medium and who understands what, what they're trying to get, like, not no disrespect to Mark Foster, but Tony Scott, you don't need to put another $100 million into this film for it to work. You need a very good editor. I think there's two here. They do a wonderful job of making this film a success. Yeah, there, there, there's there's a lot to unpack. It must be said. Um, just actually, just to be sure, I'm I'm the only one who's seen the original version, right? I don't think you've seen it, Jakub. 
1987. Uh, um, I was meaning to because it was briefly on Prime, but yes. now it's unavailable. Like completely, you can't even rent it. It's it's oh. gone. I don't know why. Uh, I think some some kind of licensing must have lapsed or something like this. I don't know. It's very difficult to track for me now. Yeah, uh, that's unfortunate. But just just to to briefly, very briefly, talk about that movie. Um, everything you were mentioning about the character writing, character development of Crazy, all of the worst things that you were expecting are in the original version. They talk about his past. They talk about the scars on the hand and the meaning behind them. He talks about it with the girl. It's 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 everything that you think Men on Fire will be on paper. It's kind of like what Jack was saying. Like you read on paper, this is what you're expecting. That's the original version. It's it's short. It's like 90 minutes long. It's very cheesy. It's very 80s. The whole sequence in this film with, with Denzel Washington and Dakota Fanning together, you know, training and going to to swim and stuff like that. It's exciting. It's funny. It feels real and tender. In the original, it feels like the opening of Commando, only not meant to be fun or satirical. They're just kind of laughing together and eating ice cream and talking with sweet music in the background. It's 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 a decent movie, but it's it's very much a product of its time. But I think like I kind of have, I, I agree with Jack to a certain extent with the editing that you were talking about because i do actually agree that it's the editing is what makes the film but it's not so much just the editing it is the directing and for that i have to thank the dozens of behind the scenes videos that i've watched on youtube of the making of the film when you're watching it especially when it's in the more chaotic sequences it might it, it does feel like it's something that might have been just i don't know made in the edit Meanwhile, you watch the actual shooting of the film and it was all planned out, which is insane. There's like, I think a 10, 15 minute long behind the scenes video on the making of the kidnapping sequence. And you can see that they were shooting at the same time with four different cameras. One is a very tight, like 100 millimeter lens, which is super, super tight. Another one is shooting at 48 frames. Another one is a wider shot, shooting from the same angle. Because that's something I was wondering, like how do you get the superimposed shots that are pretty much from the same angle but at different frame rates they were shooting with two cameras in the same area with different frame rates it's insane the meticulousness behind all of those things and watching it play out again after having seen all of those things it makes it even more impressive it's it's stellar editing stellar editing but stellar directing camera work as well i think paul cameron the cinematographer did an excellent job on this christa wagner is the editor and it's and, and it's something that they've tried to ape, to copy, to homage, whatever, in future movies, like we mentioned The Taken, all of the other action films. Um, a bit of Bourne as well, actually, because this came out when Bourne's Supremacy was made, right? And that's another one that is very chaotic editing and action. But I think what, what makes this one effective, compared more, more effective than those other movies for me, is the fact that, like Jack said, it's character-driven. And the fact that Creasy is this, like, you, you get it, he's, he's a broken man, he's, he's haunted by the things that he did in the past, that he witnessed, that he suffered, and he's an alcoholic. And there's those sequences where just the editing is going insane, he's almost thinking of killing himself, where you're in his mindset. And during the action scenes, you're still seeing things from his perspectives, from his field. And that makes it, that just enhances and heightens the tension, the effectiveness of the drama and the action. 
And meanwhile, you watch something like Taken, you're just kind of like, yeah, Lemison can't read the action scenes, we just have to shake the camera and just get everything together, which doesn't fit narratively, doesn't really add much tension, even if they were probably going for that stylistically. But here, it's, it always goes back to the character. It always goes back to what the intention was. And it is very much, like, like, like Jack said, it is a, a character-driven story and a character study. And even then, it's it's been weirdly influential. I'm working on Avonaut for the feature as well on this. Um, it's been very influential in the world of gaming. The way not just Tony Scott post Man on Fire, but Man on Fire itself was the primary inspiration for Max Payne 3. And if any of you on the podcast, but even listeners, haven't played Max Payne 3, just watch trailers for the story and watch the gameplay footage. That's Man on Fire, the editing, the effects, an American in a foreign country trying to be a bodyguard to someone who gets kidnapped and he goes on a rampage and he gets clean shaven and he's in the middle of the streets. In that one, it's Rio de Janeiro, I think. Oh, Sao Paulo, sorry. It's Sao Paulo in Brazil. It's just, it's, it's, it's a remake. It's very much a remake. And it's fascinating to see how well Tony Scott's style is translated in gaming form. And, they, and that's how it's wonderful to see how this was made like eight years after the movie came out. How, how, how big of a legacy this film has, even though it hasn't been particularly successful when it came out, it wasn't successful when it came out, even though it was kind of panned by critics. But it is this interesting style that, again, is used to make the characters and, and the, the script more effective than they would have been otherwise. I think that's just what makes it truly just, just a brilliant film. Just to add on to that as well, um, and just to give more credit to this film, I think if you turn, if you watch this film and you turned your television off and you turned your speakers up, the sound design alone would tell the story magnificently. The amount of anxiety, anxiety, the chaos and setting the sound design creates is frightening. I, I, was, I was listening to it all, especially when he um, he tortures the guy in the car, the police officer, the look of the cop. If you if you if you close your eyes and listen to that scene. You don't need to even think about anything. It's, it's in your mind straight away. Everything constantly relates back to its narrative. But you look at the editing as well. And what we both mentioned is flash cuts, quick cuts, and four cameras, 48 frames per second, the other one wide shots. Like they constantly reiterate the thematic and mood. Like the, the amount of shell shock, PTC, you can feel. That the, the fact that you can you can feel that Creasy is unable to, 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 to perhaps truly be as, as quick and decisive as he is because of his alcoholism, also because of his anxiety of, of, his, of his mental illnesses. They are all, again, reiterated through his narrative, through, through the filmmaking, again, through his narrative or the editing. It's, it's a fascinating example of like what should be shown in film school. You, you don't even have to look at the performances. The editing, literally just the sound design, will tell the story in its own right. I can't name another film at the quality of that that can do that in such a simplistic way, yet be so effective. Uh, it will be a tall order. I mean, on the editing, by the way, while we're at it, I would probably say, um, you know, it's easy to accuse Tony Scott of, um, uh, like, it just, okay, well, developing a style and just doing it just because, because it's just, because then his filmmaking kind of just shifted to that aesthetic and that became just his style. But in here, it's purposeful. I think, well, as you said, in with the Domino example on the Patreon episode, 
um like okay well it's a matter of perspective because everyone's on cocaine and then that kind of just puts you in their headspace this is all i'm i'm not entirely sure whether this is sort of uh consistent and throughout this this film but i have a feeling that this is also it helps you get into creasy's headspace because he's constantly tormented by some demons of his past like he his um perception of reality is not all there as in not um he's he well he's he's his perception of of reality is elevated like he sees the little girl on on the street and then then she's gone so you can clearly see that he's that you're you're not observing reality you're observing someone's point of view and this is point of view of Denzel Washington's character which <laughs> now brings me back to what, what we haven't renamed really checked yet which is the writing uh because when when we talk about it's like oh yeah well it's, it, it it was a risky business like this is like a, an, an hour and no sorry 2 hours and 30 minute long affair with a theatrical cut of of that length, hard R rating, which would be I think eighteen in in the UK, a massive sort of cast of uh, of talent as well, and in front and behind the camera. So and then the the way it's shot, it's also very expensive when you have like four or five cameras running at the same time. It just costs money. Like there, uh, when they were on on location in Mexico City or wherever the hell they were, I think they were doing this in Mexico City. Um, they're just burning money right <laughs> and then and so so you kind of have and then when you when you look at this sort of uh, two hours and 30 minutes worth of of running time and you realize okay when can we trim off some of the fat there isn't any there isn't nothing to trim because there is a whole list of characters that actually are now instrumental you can't remove mickey rock you can't make you can't decrease um mark anthony's role you can't um, t- take out radio mitchell's um uh, role you can't take out Rachel Ticot and you can't r- take out um <sighs> the dude from Hannibal what's his name <laughs> hold on um Giancarlo Giannini that that guy you, you can't take any of these characters out which also tells you when you when now when I'm hearing what Nick you were just saying about the previous adaptation which is like everything that that could go wrong is there um, because everything's explained, everything's paid attention to it, which basically tells you that someone picked up the same book, which would be Brian Helgen, picked up the same book that the other guys in the 80s picked up, and then you just made it work, which basically just tells you that, you know, the, the fact that they managed to score Brian Helgen on this post-Mystic River kick as well, because I think he was, I'm not sure if he got that lost, I think he was just <laughs> um, nominated uh, for, for, for screenwriting in there. However, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is he's he's managed to adapt a book in a way that he preserves the complexity of a narrative that's usually found in an, in a novel of that kind because you'd have this is not even an action thriller as a result is it's a it's a revenge procedural because there's so many things going on at once there's every car there's no such thing as side characters in there you're just following like three plot lines at the same time because there's what there's something that Rachel Nicotin uh, does there's um there's Denzel's own pursuit and there's and there's just so many things just wrapped into this narrative and then it all comes together in the end right um so I think Brian Helgeland also kind of deserves a bit of a you know dip of the hat in here um which kind of brings me to you know when you think about why some other films don't work where this one does is the fact that you actually do spend an and 45 minutes together establishing chemistry palpable chemistry between a young girl and a 
big old bodyguard, right? Because then she's taken away, and then it gives you the reason to 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 um to follow this guy, um, and then see and see this whole thing through. And then once you real once you've you learn what happened to the girl or what you think happened to the girl, it kind of gives you even more sort of um pressure on put piles more pressure onto this character so you want to see this revenge through like this is what this is why this film works in something like john wick does not for instance or taken because it, you don't or, or or the sort of um eli roth remake of death wish like you need to like you need to actually take the gamble establish i think establish chemistry establish give the character a reason for, to to go on a revenge spree they have to give them a reason so that you have the reason to to cheer him on as he's doing really unspeakable things to people right because you know it's very it would be very easy to turn denzel washington's character from an anti-hero from a hero to an anti-hero and even even into a straight-up villain because he's just well he has a code but he's well let's just say um he's um, not exactly a nice person put it this way and um and you and you care because all 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 that you have in your mind is these little scenes where he's teaching the little girl how to swim and win or when he or when they're talking about what concubines are um or i don't know when they're in the in the car and they're have and then um they're having their little sort of interplay in in you know when when she just um decides that okay well um she's going to sit in the back from now on like when they're they're acting like an old couple almost and this is, I think, what makes the film like the, the 45 minutes that they gambled on establishing a chemistry, the chemistry between a nine year old uh, girl and a big old guy <laughs> who's who's tasked to uh, to protect her because without this chemistry, this, this would have failed. That's my opinion, at least. Oh, I, I honestly so, could watch like an entire movie that's just about those characters, like remove the kidnapping. It's all about him just kind of growing up with this girl and teaching her things about life i could watch that movie and enjoy it that's what makes it just so quick for me the first the first half of the film i prefer it over the second half even though it justifies like every you know it's the action it's the revenge but there's just something about the first hour of this film it just flies by so quickly so so quickly even on a rewatch it's 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 the heart and soul like you said and it's it's something that I, I I get why it's not present in other revenge films because they're trying to focus more on just spectacle, like the John Wicks or the Takens. But this one, it's 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 I would I would barely consider it an action movie, honestly. Like you said, it's a like a revenge procedural. That's a great way to put it because it's, there's barely any action and it's quick. It's mean. It doesn't linger on it as long. It's yeah, it's it's a fascinating beast. I think I think one major factor of why this film is so strong in its screenplay, though, is because Brian Helgeland was a meant to direct this, wasn't it? But I think he brought it to the studio. I think he was ultimately sort of undermined by 20th Century Fox, who then went with uh, with Tony Scott. So I think there's definitely a well, Tony Scott was like a third choice for 20th Century yeah, Fox yeah. as well. So which which is bizarre anyway. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, the whole thing's a strange sort of experiment in its own mm-hmm. right. But again, just going back to the screenplay, we said about like those reasons, the reasons why those Denzel Washington and Dakota Fanning things work because they're a contradiction to character. You have a character who, uh, on one end of Creasy who is who's a depressive, in a very dark mindset, <laughs> is is wanting to kill himself, and then you've got the likes of 
you know, him, him it's, it's mostly implied, but we, we can definitely tell from this, that from the scripture that he's a, a man who's done some evil things. I mean, he constantly asks, will God forgive us? Stuff like that. I mean, they talk about the truth of a bullet, the bullet never lies. And he's having, he's having a harmless, almost tongue-in-cheek conversation with a, with a young girl that feels contradictory to his character. And those, those sort of sequences meld them together where she humanizes him. And she brings him down to her level. And it's generally sort of, I mean, these scenes are conventionally sort of archetype in the way of trying to convince your audience of, of the, you know, the emotional value of character and stuff. Like, it's a very conventional narrative tool to do so. But this the is like that, Paper Moon almost. Like, this yeah, is, yeah know, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, like I said, it's archetype. It's, 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 it's conventional at this point. Yeah. But, but the way, like, how it's so tender between Fanning and, 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 and Washington, like, the, I think the, the, the concubine scene is, is, is wonderful. When, when they say... Um, and she says, do you, do you have ever had a girlfriend? And he says, yeah, Nonya. She says, Nonya who? And she's Nonya business. Like, th- those, those moments, like, it, it's the father figure he brings out. And also that, that improvised, is, by the way. Yeah, well, that would that, that generally surprised me. But th- that would not be something I, I think Washington would not have up his sleeve. I think he's fabulous with charisma. Again, like, his delivery, of his, like, sort of dialogue <laughs> delivery, if so, is outstanding. But here, just perfect. And they have, they have multiple issues. Like they, they talk in the car, and, and, and you know, and you get you get to the point again. The obvious sequences here would be would be the swimming sequences again. You have her bringing him down to her level, and then he brings her up to his level. You have this wonderful um, yin and yang relationship that builds and broods. Like I said, like there's so much depth here. There's so much like wonder. It's the power again to to have that kidnapping scene come at the time where it does, which I think is around the hour mark, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's almost halfway through the film, yeah. Which, which again, yeah. is like, like it's that in in all all the moments in the world we spoke about earlier it happens in the first ten minutes to, to to craft plot. Here, plot is secondary. Like, let's have character. Forget about the plot. Let's have character. No, no, the plot's so, plot's important because you still have an hour long. No, of course, of getting this con- to its natural conclusion is just over an hour. Result, it's almost three hours no, of long, course, right? but in the in the in the way of Ridley's film, which is is not a, a, an indictment of her at all. I'm not I'm not um, causing havoc at all, but he has to get through that to get to the point of what he wants to talk about. Whereas uh, narratively, you would suggest that's probably the right way. You, you create your plot, you create your narrative, and then you have your, your character. This film does it the other way around, where it has its character. With inclinations of plot, and then we have our moment. We have our, we have our, uh, you know, fire. Let's say no, no pun intended. It was terrible, but we, we do have this sort of sentiment of fire, and we have this angst and that sequence. And how again, it's the it's the moment in the film where everything we've we've spoken about in this podcast so far comes together: editing, sound, cinematic, character, plot. Everything comes together in that one scene where she comes out of the piano, which I'd never noticed on on uh, on a rewatch. But you can literally hear her belch, and you can hear yes. the piano oh, teacher. Yeah, that's say, on my that's on my top three. Yeah, I, I, a, I such a beautiful moment that. of levity where she just uh, stops the playing and just burps. I, again, it's like you have that wonderful <laughs> humor. Like the, the film is wonderful with tone. It's incredibly dark, but it's also refreshing in moments where it needs to breathe. Which again is 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 a testament to a master craftsman in charge of the camera, which is Tony Scott. It really is. But but again, like we're, we're talking about just not only charisma between Washington and Fanning. I've got, I've got to say, like 
I'm not I'm not um, overly keen on the supporting cast as total. I don't think anyone steals the show. I think it's interesting to see Mickey Rourke here. I think it's interesting to see Mark Antony. I think Radha Mitchell is probably the highlight. But mm-hmm. uh, again, Walken doesn't have much to do, but he probably steals his scenes. Um, Janini and Rachel Tacotin, they have an interesting chemistry, which I think this is also a carryover from the book because they would have more latitude to have. Um, that also feels as well, some, Jacob. If you're talking about yeah. fat, I think we, we could both agree. <laughs> if, if, you were, if you were an editor here and you really wanted to cut away, those would be your scenes. Because that, that, that might take 10 minutes or so, you know? But th- those two characters, which essentially are third parties, you could get away with cutting those sequences out. You could get away with cutting most of that out, especially when they go to the nightclub. You don't have to have that. They never really, they never really intertwined in the finale either. That's one of, I'm going to bring up in one of my negatives as well, which I don't want to touch about. But you could easily get away with cutting that out, trimming 10 minutes and having this as 2.20 set, if not 2.15. So it's interesting why they're there, but they do bring a certain gravity towards the situation. They bring more of the humanity level, don't they? Suppose that the, the, the situation is not, uh, I mean, there are more plot devices than, than anything else, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah, you kind of need, 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 need the character to kind of progress along some, like with his investigation. And then he needs help because otherwise you'd have to just suspend your disbelief that he just finds these people out of like, yeah. thin air, right? It, so, it also, it also brings, yeah, it also brings character to, to Mexico City as well. You know, mm-hmm. again, we're talking about a plot that, that's, that's, that's explaining itself of. of the well exposition, let's say, like when when we have these two characters on the screen, like we clearly know this thing is is not new. This thing's happened over and over and over. I mean, interesting enough. Do you know the beginning where it shows um, the actual kidnapping itself? You know, mm-hmm. the guy who has his ear sliced off. That's the J. Paul Getty sort of, which homage. is like quite clear. Do you know that actually happened to Wilmero del Toro's father? Um, I I heard something about this because there was there were these guys who were called like infamous earloppers or something like this mm-hmm. in the operating Mexico City city. But, yeah, it literally happened to Del Toro's father. Because he had to pay like a million dollars or something. Yeah, like I this. can't remember what film it was on. I, I think can't, might... but I can't remember. Was it like James Cameron that helped him that helped him get the money? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if it was yeah. Chronos or oh. it was um. Because uh, this this uh, hold on. Oh, oh. Because oh, this it was, was Devil's Backbone. It was early. Uh... I think it's dangerous to... Oh, look, I'll say this just to move on as well. I've been hearing a lot of stuff about the Suicide Squad lately, about <laughs> its political infusions on American intervention and, and, and the United States. Yeah, it was States. James Cameron, by the way. Oh, wow. Uh, well, he's, at least he's done something great in the last few years. Um, um, I'll, I'll say this, though, about, about, the, the, about the political undertones of this film. They're here. They don't have a great amount of gravity, but they're the most definitely brooding in the background. But the thing about bring up, I bring up about the Suicide Squad is that you have people on on Facebook and Twitter and and Letterboxd saying stuff like, "Oh, it's it's a great character study of American intervention," and you think, "Well, I think this film actually does a really better, well, a, a better job with the gritty gravitas of that situation." You have one man hired to do a job that, with because of his issues on that job itself, which go you know, excuse my French, tits up that he has to rectify. And instead of actually getting to the point of what he what he can do and help the authorities, which again, uh, ultimately stab him in the back anywhere, he burns the house down. Like this classic American, not to get political here, but American, you know, United States motif. I think this film does an incredible job of that, actually. And it's, it's an element that I don't think anybody actually takes precedent of. 
it's one of those things where again like people see this film it's dumb it's fun it's an action film when actually deeper there's a lot actually political it's saying underneath you know it, it highlights the good people of mexico city like it, it talks about people who are defiant against what happened here like you, you know what the film makes some character choices. Again, there's there's a lot that you could argue is unneeded. What what happens with with the ultimate subplot of, of the money with Mickey Rourke and Mark Antonet? Mark Antonet, you could again say unneeded, excessive. But it reiterates um, that not everybody from Mexico City is actually the, you know the devil but, reincarnate. But getting Mark Antony to become a character that he that that he becomes gives the whole story an interesting wrinkle because apart from. Dakota Fanning and and maybe even her mother. Everyone's a bit shady. Everyone has their own agenda to everything else. I mean, I suppose like Denzel has his own past, but his intentions are clear, mm-hmm. and he's sort of like a martyr in this. And then Dakota Fanning's mother is sort of like she's in the dark on everything. She doesn't have a clue. Yeah, right? I mean, I mean, I'm, but, I'm only bringing it up yeah. just to play devil's advocate, of course. But I think it's interesting that you can you can definitely sit here and you can say like we can cut this out, we can cut that out. There's definitely material here to get rid of. But each of it has strands and has roots of its own. Like there's this talk about political undertones. There's this about capitalism, about greed. You know, there's there's also stuff about, you know, it's it's just very interesting that you have three characters here who are at the the forepin of what happens to Creaser. You've got Rayburn who brings him into the country. You have Creasy himself who destroys a country, and you have Mickey Rock who wants to financially rape this country, or, 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 or these characters. Well, three, there's there's more three, than three that. Americans. But there's like think about this of let's not even Americans, but then you think about this idea that okay, well, spoiler alert. Like, it, like if you, if you're listening already, already haven't seen the film yet, like it's your fault. But um, when you realize that okay. Her father organizes a kidnapping as because he well he in, inherits an empire that's in debt because his father instead of being a businessman he was a gambler right so he has debt and he realizes oh if I get arrange my daughter to be kidnapped then I'll get some insurance because that's why they hired Denzel Washington in the first place Always so there's well, all sorts of shady people involved in this and as this is going like there's the chief of police is also shady because he wants to steal the money and then um, and everyone's to everyone wants to kind of just get their cut on something and then in the process the, the girl gets killed uh, well we we know she doesn't but quote no. unquote we should <laughs> talk about that later as well we should talk about that later well, yeah but then you, you realize that this is an incredibly incredibly messy situation and it's outlined very clearly like it's 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 almost it doesn't draw attention to itself just how complex it is but when you actually sit down and break it down it actually is like there's like 10 characters involved in this which is which to me this this is basically something that you find in a in like an airport novel because then you you have the latitude to kind of deal with ten characters organizing a plot and then you can execute it be, slowly because the reader does not read this book in like an hour and a half, so you have time to process this this stuff, and it's executed in such a way that you don't have to make choices choices as in like oh we can't we have to make a composite character of the out of these three people or we have to get rid of this subplot because it won't make sense but everything's make everything makes sense everything is sort of the way it should be and it's incredibly gray and dark and shady and it just works 
which is which a, you, yeah, again you know sort of like a testament to how great the screenwriting job on this is as well mm-hmm. would you say would you say this is excessively dark Jacob? not excessively i think it earns its darkness because you know what tonally <laughs> tonally yes i mean tonally it, i would say if it wasn't this dark it would just drown in a pond of of basically just a death wish knockoffs because it yeah. actually, it, when it goes places and actually goes quite a, quite quite far with 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 certain yeah. um, sort of themes of, um, again, it kind of goes. Uh, let's just say, in this is this and some like Gone Baby Gone is kind of like made on of the same cloth, as in like it goes. Yeah, good show. It's ex, it's extremely dark sort of noir, that um, that just you know it ends its the tone it's not excessive i think the critics in 2004 they were just way off the mark i'm mean, just but i suppose they were they were excused because they were still living in the post 9-11 sort of umbrella of i don't know not being able to, to process stuff properly i don't know yeah i, d- I definitely yeah. feel like this can be reappropriated as sort of a, a like an american uh, justification for revenge like yeah i can, yeah, I yeah. can understand like i would like to read that perception of it don't get me wrong but I mean, we spoke about it again. Now, the reason why I bring up the excessive violence because we've we, we've all spoke about this. Perhaps <coughs> filmed through the quality that it would be now. Let's say, I think obviously with Scott's passing is quite clearly the the, 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 the catalyst there. But I, I don't think Washington would do this again. I think he, this is a film that perfectly gets its lead act at the correct time. You know, because I, I don't think he would he would want to do this film in the capacity that it's. When you look at the equalizer, you could say it's is is contextually more close akin to this in terms of violence and and and, and theme and and let's say weight of righteousness. But even then, again, that's Anton Fuqua who was meant to make this film. So perhaps I'm wrong. That perhaps I'm talking bollocks. But see, uh, something like and, the equalizer has this has has more the problem with what this thing doesn't, as in it doesn't spend enough time establishing chemistry with these two characters, and you just follow along video game style almost mm-hmm. as the guy and you know like goes on a rampage i, in, I mean the only, yeah. the only reason why anton fuqua turned this film down because he made king arthur <laughs> oh, so blessing in disguise who, who got third like so that. Uh, and also just thinking of the equalizer and just I, it's been a while since i watched that movie the first one but i remember it being uncomfortably graphic and violent i think it's even. sanitized the equalizer. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think this. I think it's third act goes for it, but I don't. I don't think anything before that. I mean, maybe I think in the second one, the one well, with Pedro Pascal. Well, the like second terrible. one goes way off off the rails like, because the, if, do you remember, the, the second one kind of ends with the, with the hurricane, right? <laughs> yes. You know, Jacob, but uh, honestly, Just killing I'm people in this. I mean, I reviewed town. both of them. I think I reviewed Equalizer for it. The, the, sec- the first one ends with in a factory. Yes. Oh, no, in a, in has, a warehouse where you work. It has done Blizzardman, doesn't it, as one of the henchmen. Yeah. Strange. Which is basically kind of like, well, no, the equalizer kind of, I don't, I don't know, for some people it may work, for some it won't, but it kind of ends like Home Alone. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's only really R rated. Or like, okay, well, if you want to go, I don't know, to, to avoid the sort of comedic connotations, like it ends like Skyfall. Yeah. which is also homo <laughs> I, I, I also feel that that's, that's created decision to bottleneck the film brings down the price of, of sets brings down the price of performance possibly yeah it's, no, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's creative but what I wanted to talk about was just how the, the way the violence is framed and shot in that film and how it lingers on it you're meant to almost take 
the I don't know, like joy and revel into this this henchman getting destroyed and mutilated. It's not, it's it's such in a way that could have been done in a more I don't know, like I think as a director, I probably would have shot it and edited it in a way that's purposefully uncomfortable and just disturbing. Instead, the whole film is framing Denzel Washington as this badass who's just killing people left and right. And, oh, I, I killed them in 30 seconds and expected to do it in 28. Oh, just is is very much an action hero. Are you giving not very much to, uh, to the director of Anton Fuqua, Nicola? No, I'm not giving points. But it sounds different, like well, that, you know, my friend. <laughs> different, different perspectives. But just no. But uh, I remember just watching that movie and feeling like yucky. And sometimes like, oh, what's what? What are you doing? Why are you showing me that so much? It felt uncomfortable. Meanwhile, in this one, the way it's all leading up to the revenge, um, I think you put it beautifully, Jakub. Just how again, it's it is an anti-hero. It makes. It does incredibly violent, nasty things. And they are violent, but they're not very graphic. Because of how it's edited and shot, you feel the intensity of the axes committing without needing to linger on them and showing oh. them. And even in, there's even a weird level of respect in some way. Like when he's, after he's tortured the guy in the, in the car, like an aria starts playing in the background, Nessun um, Dorma. And he gives him the last cigarette and then just shoots him in the head. And you don't see the blood splatter. You don't see anything super violent. It has an emotional impact to it that's both, I don't even know how to say, borderline operatic in a way. I think the word's visceral. That's what it visceral, is. yes. This film has yes. a soul. That's what's different. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, like yeah. you feel the impact of all the deaths. It's none of them feel like just mindless henchmen that are there just for a body count, which ties back into this not being very much a, an action film. You don't have like killing 70 people in a club like John Wick or something like that, or 50 Russians, whatever, in, in Paris in Taken. Um, but he doesn't have feel- to sit down and say, well, I'm thinking I'm back, you know? <laughs> No, no, it's 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 just People too completely. Ask me if I'm back, it's yeah. very different wavelengths. <laughs> it's it's more grounded as well. It's a heightened sense of reality while also feeling more grounded in the real world. It's an interesting balance. Everything, also, everything feels counter, doesn't it? Like everything feels like it's it's countering itself, constant, like it's contradicting mm. stuff. Like the two things you said, it's hyper realistic, but it's grounded. Like that shouldn't yeah. work on paper. Like, but it's, it, I just think it's interesting. Like we we speak about how it, it feels like. It, defines itself by going against not necessarily convention but what we expect you know like what, what we deem reality is like that i think it's really interesting it's not necessarily a film i would have thought that it would be doing those things it would propel those questions mm. i think the, the main sort of i mean the more i think about it the, the more i can convince myself that this is there it is consistent in that say moments of violence or moments of action are almost exclusively shot from Denzel's perspective. And this is where you see the sort of, it kind of becomes highly stylized at the same time being grounded because it's grounded in a perspective. So when when he tortures a guy in the car and he just snaps his fingers one by one, just, when just normally in a Hollywood film, you'd probably just think like, one's enough, right? And then you, they'll start saying, no, no, like there's like, I think three fingers get get lopped off in the process or something like that. So it uses the, the the cigarette burner thing. Yeah, but, but you always, them. but they, it's only just these. Mm-hmm. Fl- like we talked about this with, with sunshine. It's like it's only these flashes of violence. It's just 
it's half a second of you know like some 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 horrible image and then the rest is kind of just you know it's not like well, because i suppose he wouldn't also be looking at this the whole time like as opposed to Den- denzel washington would be also thinking about other things oh he's so, used to it it's just comes or he's just of, it's just yeah it's it's just, you know, it's just what he does that's what, just what he does um so it kind of works that way i think this is this is also part of the success of this because like when you think about something like well, I don't want to come back to John Wick, but I think this is something that I, I, I kind of have to because when apart from the stakes and apart from the reason for this guy to go on the, on the adventure that it, that he does, which you know in John Wick is just basically they took his dog in his car and then we bar- we didn't even meet his wife, right? So uh, she's dead. Oh yeah, you're you're told that someone's gone, and then you know, but in here you spent an hour establishing establishing a relationship that's torn apart. Which is which is w- what makes this thing work, and then which makes you compelled to sit on the guy's shoulder as he does these things. <laughs> so yeah. it's I think that's 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 ma- part of massive part of the success of this. And then there's also another <laughs> another thing is when you, uh, I, I don't I don't even know this this must have been like a nightmare for film producers because there's so many things that could that just could potentially put people off, um, in terms of like financing this and say oh, this is not going to fly because there's just it, it's it's like a laundry list of people he has to go through, and then um, you you mentioned there's there's a social commentary in there. It's like this, the, you, like the things you you think oh you you could cut all, um, cut out as in like the the nightclub, which is which is interesting in its own right because um, I think he shoots in the air on like on the third go. They they realize this is a guy shooting. This is not something to be cheered up, <laughs> to, to, to cheer, which is another moment of levity for some reason. Um, but it's. It it it's all it, it works in service of everything. So I don't I, I don't know. I I, I honestly I come clutching at straws. If I wanted to, uh, well, I know I, I say this quite often that if you really want to, you could probably take this apart, but then you can't really take it apart. I think it's a genius decision to shoot through the lens of Denzel Washington's Crucy as well. I think mm-hmm. there's definitely a conscious decision there that not to relay that back to the audience, feeling like they're taking part in it. There's one thing witnessing it. And, and, watch, and watching this devastation, but not actively participating in it. And I think it's an interesting film, like, it's what the difference between you get from natural born killers to the likes of Man on Fire, where we, we can watch two people destroy and destruct and, and, and feel like we, we want to be with them, like it's like we're on a TV. Indulge, if you will. But here, we do, there's, there's no sort of conscience. Well, there's, there's the, the difference, right? Because... There's a brevity to it. Well, there's there's brevity and then but there's also the fact that say if you compare this to some like natural world killers, you you're watching people who are irredeemable. Um because they're just well I don't know, I could, like you, you could potentially say that the sitcom thing with Rodney Dangerfield is kind of like, okay, well that's well, I suppose she <laughs> she has a reason to to do to, to to murder her family, whatever. But but in here you actually are watching someone on a on a quest for divine retribution, like you're literally just thinking, like when he when he says, and the lines are brilliant by the by when he says, like, oh, forgiveness is between them and and God. I'm just here to arrange a meeting, and you're just like, yes, this is like what we're talking about with this sort of Tantino episode of um, when the violence is exhilarating because you're just on his shoulder and saying, yes, do it because you know, like you're still thinking that the girl's dead. So you know, good on him kill these people because you know this is a this is a bold decision to actually just convince the audience that the, that they actually killed an 80 year old girl and and you'd say that this may may people put people off but i think this 
sells the character of Denzel Washington and sells the entire hour and 15 minutes of absolute orgy of mayhem. Mm-hmm. That's what it works. Do you, do you not, do you not, sorry, Nick, do you not think that there's a slight issue there to not consciously deconstruct or voice what Denzel Washington's character is doing here? Like, granted, he, he's, he's crafting revenge on, on someone he loves and he's a little girl, and obviously, I mean, what do you mean? Like, well, I just I think that there has to, it's interesting that the film has no conscience in the fact of his actions. Like, everything's justified. And yes, these are terrible people who do terrible things, but it's not a film that ever wants to step and, and, and reassess, perhaps, the decisions it, go, it makes along the way. I think there's one of them, when he meets the pregnant lady with, with the, the voice's brother, there's a moment there where he, he, you can tell that the character is, is internalising his next step. Perhaps after he's been shot, I think that, that, that that's definitely one word for it. One reason for it, but when he's on the phone and he's told that he can make the swap, that's the only time in the film I felt that Denzel Washington's creaser has a moral obligation to process his actions and justify them within himself. Well, he knows he's dying as well. I, it is not necessarily that. I think it's the actions he's he, the, the fire he's he's burned throughout to get to that point. Like he's he's gone on a devastation, knowing the girls. I, mean, I suppose he he uh, when he exited the hospital and decided, okay, I'm going to go and take revenge for everything that's done that's been done to. Me. Well, he basically almost for everything that's done to me because um, they took away the person who showed me the gave me the will to live, right? Because he tries to kill himself and he fails, and it's also poetic when you think about how how this bullet ends up killing Sam Ramos as well. But um, mm-hmm. um, which is incredibly interesting nuance piece of nuance, by the way, in terms of like screenwriting and symmetry. But um, I I think um that he knew that okay, I'm going to do this until I'm I'm until I'm dead. I'm gonna find out and and find and punish every single person who ever did this to whoever had a hand in this who put their finger on this girl i'm going to kill them and I, or i'm going to die trying so he basically just makes this piece right there and then with the fact he's he's not going to survive so for him for him to make the life for life swap is basically i've been waiting for this that's my that that's that's my chance this is hit this that's my final sacrifice i don't have to do this my mission's complete right which makes it poetic. It makes it brilliant. Especially that's, when, a very, that's a very yeah. interesting justification of your point. That that's very interesting. It sort of turns the film on its head almost. Like he's he's not even consciously, maybe subconsciously, or even even consciously, he he is waiting for the moment that Peter gets taken. Is it? I mean, if that's what you're implying, that's of not necessarily Peter being taken, but a moment for him to sort of go down a rabbit hole. Um. No. 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 I think. Uh, well, before she gets taken. I think he's. Uh, you're essentially watching a different. You're watching a film of. Um, you're watching a story of, of someone convincing so, con- convincing um, a, a young girl showing showing an. Uh, well, basically, someone. Hold on. How do I address this? Word? Well, there's an interesting piece of chemistry between them because for Peter, Peter doesn't have a father. Effectively, he's on mm-hmm. business. He's always. Well, she doesn't, shouldn't effectively have a mother either. Yeah, I suppose. So. But but the mother le- learns her lesson, right? Um, okay, I'll, I'll go with you. Because then eventually, she because I think she, I, I'd say she doesn't have a father. She she doesn't have a father figure, right? So mm-hmm. she finds a father figure in him. 
So she molds him into. So she gets into like, what's the what's what you know what's the scars for whatever. So she's she's engaging him in conversation. She wants to find out what he what he's on about. And then he 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 is he is the, the they even tell him in one scene, well, you're the father today because her father is on business yeah. and you're watching her uh, swim in a competition and she comes in first, right? Oh, no, she comes in thir- third at the time. The first time yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. she comes in third in training, and then in the in the actual competition, she wins, right? So he he is the father who teaches her to swim. She he is the dad who teaches her to ride a bike, right? He te- he is the one teaching her about the nuance of like, okay, if you don't want to do something because your father wants you to, um, you know, like take piano lessons, this is what you do. This is how you this he teaches her the adult stuff, adult sort of like, well, this is how you manipulate other people to get what you want. This is how you get out of a tricky situation without anybody getting angry at you. Right. So the chem they, they spend 45 to 50 minutes of, of screen time establishing this beautiful piece of chemistry. And on, on the other end of the spectrum, she is teaching him how to, she's she is reminding him of uh the beauty, the beauty of of just normal life, of just having having a kid, having a relationship with another human being. They have a sequence in, um, I think, with Rayburn and his wife uh, or yes. girlfriend. I can't remember in, in in a restaurant. It's a beautiful scene, and it's just you can tell it's pro- completely improvised. And they smile at each other and just talk, and they make shit up on the spot. I, su- I suppose, right? Oh, we they, they're t- they're telling an eight year old. That's like you know, like love stories from their past, as in like she's fully incorporated into their lives, and it's just. Um, so I suppose um, he he's not decided. Okay, well, this is the rabbit hole. I'm, um, he's not he's not you, well waiting for an excuse to go down the rabbit hole. He is forced to because he's for one thing he's he's he was told to that well he was. Um, Let's just say he, for a second, believes that he could actually have a normal life. He he could be happy for a second, and then it's taken away from him almost the next day. And this is when he makes his decision. When he realizes, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see this through because then everything's corrupt. Everyone's everyone's fucking shady. And then on top of that, they flub the whole thing, and then the, and the, the girl ends up killed. And he just says, okay, enough is enough. I'm gonna fucking kill everyone in, in this room right now. So yeah, so I suppose he he doesn't go into the he doesn't look for an excuse to, to to go down the rabbit hole. He just makes this sort of once he sees that he she's gone, he makes a decision that okay, my life's over now. All I'm all I need to do now is make sure that I'm not that the people who did this are going to pay the price. That's 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 all this is. That's all I'm all I'm arguing. I suppose. Do you know what I want to know? Whatever happened to the dog? Oh, Sam. <laughs> it just disappears after that assassination. Oh, not kidnapping, should I say? And runs away as dog. shooting starts. <laughs> I just, I was just petrified. I wanted to know where, where, where it went. I think well, yeah, no, no one gave a shit about the dog because the dog was basically a, a guilt, a, a, a guilt manifestation from the father. He was constantly <laughs> no, absent, right? And why did you? Well, I just think it'd be interesting at the end if he, if she ran off and. Mom brought the dog. But look, Sam's it's just here. in the car. It's just, you know, he's biting on, you know, uh, Ramos. Well, not Ramos, but the, 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 the voice's brother. That's poetic cinema. I will say one thing. Um, I always really like, I think we've, we, I think, Jakob, you've said, AQ, you've said as well, we've all got our individual um, affection for Tony Scott's scores in his films. Yes. Jakob, yours is Crimson Tide. Nick, I'm, I'm sure yours is in Latry Is Ramos. this yours? 
Yes. But is, isn't Lisa Gerard a bit much by the end? Because no. every single, I mean, I know, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just, I mean, I'm not a, the biggest fan of like dead can dance, but like at some point I'm like, she goes, oh yeah, again, I'm, I'm going to blow a gasket. I cannot, I'd like, it's still ringing in my head. Agreed. <laughs> right now I'm still feeling the music. Stop, go like, away. She's going to start watching her live then. Wow, that was pretty good there. No, I mean, the score is good. You've got to bear in mind, like, I, I, I really adore this film and I didn't realize that the, the theme is, is ultimately um, built up as the, as the film progresses. We have certain cues of it. Then we try to sort of formulate it. And then by we get to, we increasingly goes full on um, black ops. The, mm -hmm. the, the, for, the formulation of that theme starts to come to fruition. And when, when you get to the end of the film, when he makes that, that, that um, life for life swap, it just comes into whole, the whole of its affection. I think it's definitely earned. Granted, it's very much, um, how do I put this? It's, I don't. I don't want to say it's over the top, but it's it's very much um, conscious of what it's trying to achieve, which I feel sometimes it's like, oh, okay, you're going for the easy sort of the easy dig here. Nevertheless, I think it's so so effective, and 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 the fact that how she puts her, you know, slight twang on things, where it's you could say it's her own affliction because doesn't she make up the words as well? Like she's just all it's all rhubarb, isn't it? Like it's not true. Like it's not actually like she makes these these the words up in like genuinely not not as if she makes the song up. She actually makes I mean, the words up. You mean that, that she's not singing the lyrics. real words? It's yeah. just it's just yeah. like some she's just making noises and just yes, that's, that's, that's literally it. That's yeah, literally I know. It. I will say this: like I, I like her. I like her gladiator. Um, oh, that's peak. I think yeah. However, if you ever watch a layer kick, she has the last little bit in the aria. You're born with it. You die. No, what is it? What does Michael Gibson? Michael Gibson's uh, Michael, Michael Gambon and Michael Gibson. Is. You're born. No, you're born. You take shit. You get out in the world. You take more shit. Then you realise that we're just in a layer cake, Sam. And then the, the, it starts that like, it's called Aria by Lisa Gerard. It's wonderful. This is better. It's so effective towards the end. I mean, there was one. Th I'm not sure if it's worked into the aria, but there's a piece of classical music that's kind of woven into the into the narrative as Cleo de Lune. Yes, Cleo de Lune, which kicks in very importantly, I think, um, when she's about to get kidnapped. So she's practicing a pia piano piece, which is different, and then doesn't think, it also happen when he tries to kill himself? Uh, yeah, yes. yeah, that's when yes, plays and then. I'm not sure whether he's he's the only one who hears it, or is this something that just it just alerts him that okay something is not right because or what he, what he's hearing the piano changes from the you know like the practicing little girl interspersed with belching into the Claire de Lune piece mm -hmm. and then just everything kind of goes to shit, but this but this melancholy sort of um, atmosphere kind of permeates the score as well as a result of that I think it kind of just shows more decisively in the latter half of the film which is quite weird when you think about what happens in the latter half of the, of the film but yeah, yeah. no I'm, like, I'm just making i'm just making jokes because you know like at, at some point lisa, lisa gerard is kind of like okay well she's an acquired taste but you know like the score is really good yeah yes we'll say one thing she's she's very much not used anymore well because at some point she had an expiration date because like because then people would like, hire like, her yeah. to do this like, second well what what does this film need 
It needs a woman wailing. Okay, let's just let, let's get Risa Gerard on the phone. Hey, uh, and you know, <laughs> yeah. When, when they start par- using you in parody movies, it's yes. like that's that's when you know you've reached the end. Just like when you, when, you know, some Enya. That's what need get some Enya or a local. <laughs> yeah, it's Enya or But she she would work in like a Zack Snyder film totally. Oh, when you, mm, sick. No, it's just like the, when slow-mo and then some like superman sees his his fucking mom or dad and just and in the background you just hear mm-hmm. it's like the icelanders <laughs> in justice league no i suppose she i don't know because it's not like she doesn't have a range because in terms of her vocal uh, performance and ab- ability she's a great singer but then she has this sort of pocket of this sort of f- f- folk <laughs> music that's kind of just applicable to certain sort of kind of hollywood cliche yes they're all gone but, but don't you think like that's that's in hindsight though oh well it is i mean i don't want to say it's ridley scott's fault and hans Zimmer's fault because i think it is um but it kind of may be because the now we are free sort of peace and in general like the score to gladiator was extremely popular How do you well, and it was right? extremely recognizable and it just helps sell the sort of idea of that film then sorry hmm? how did you pronounce that film that ridley scott at least gladiator it's a very strange is that because um, your your accent gladiator yeah i mean that's it's the foreign thing you have to forgive me the foreign thing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know so if I can do it. There. I mean, I, just, I, I don't know. I, can, I pronounce certain things differently, and I'm told at work that I'm an idiot because you no, know, like no, I'm no, saying, "Oh, what, Jesus. Yes. why are How you, do you saying? saying it?" Gladiator. So I, I think I, I, I'm just I pronounce it glad gladiator. Gladiator. Okay, hold on. I, I like need your pronunciation. To, I, mean, I, yeah, cool. I have the Italian pronunciation. I mean, it makes sense to call it gladiator, but you know, gladiator. I don't know because then at work I would just say. Oh, let's put in an autoclave. And it's like, no, it's autoclave. Why are you Ugh. German? Fuck off. <laughs> so, yeah. The German way is the way to go. Oh, like, it's Italian, know. German. <laughs> it's written this way. That's how you pronounce it. Come on, people. Um, let me just I can, I can barely speak English, so let's move on. Gladiator. Okay. Oh, it's the gla- gla- gladiator. Because oh, he's glad to be ater. <laughs> oh, gla- wow. He's glad to ater. Anyway. Oh. I will say this about the music because you talked about the singer, but you haven't talked about Eric Gregson Williams. Was, oh, you, I tell you what, oh, did yeah. you think it sounded like Unbreakable at times? No, I, I thought it did. I thought it, it sounded like um, James Newton Howard. I mean, no, that, I, that I, may I, be part of the uh, times as well. Because that, yeah, that, that, that was the early two thousands. It's kind of yeah, like... definitely, definitely. Well, Eric it's Gregson Williams. Just to, to bring it back to video games for a second, okay. but he's, he's made a shit ton of, of, of scores for movies and stuff. But most popularly for video games, he's made the soundtrack to the Metal Gear Solid franchise, which has... Have you guys played any of them, maybe? I don't know. Mm, no, I don't think so. Fair enough. But the, the music in those games, it's amazing. Literally, go listen to the Metal Gear Solid 2 main theme, or Metal Gear Solid 3 main theme. It's just incredible. He scored and The Rock, by the way. He did? He, he made Deja Vu as well later. And he you know? the state. So you can have the film. He made the Shrek movies. Made the man. I like his. I like his Scott the Kingdom of Heaven. He made a good. He made a lot of great scores, but I, just I like the Crusaders. Which oh, <laughs> is to me, he's always been more tied to to the oh, Metal Gear games. And there's a lot of 
of Metal Gear in the soundtrack to this one, especially more in Deja Vu, which I think is a superior score, actually, to Man on Fire. Probably controversial take, but I've listened to it already like three, four times, and I love it. But it's, it's the way he uses... It is a very epic composer, if you give him space to be epic, because otherwise he's also very capable of going to more subdued, personal more way. More moody, yes. And the, <clears throat> the way he uses guitar, especially... Because in the in the fourth Metal Gear game, he has a, the main score is made with almost entirely with the guitar for the main character, and a lot of those motifs are already present in Man on Fire when it's just kind of like gre- greasy alone. The room just hear the guitar like dun, 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 dun. just builds that atmosphere that again brings you into the character's mindset, into his melancholy, his loneliness. It's wonderful. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, and the way he uses, and just in general, to close for me, the, the music thing is just the way they use the other other songs. It's not like in a like we mentioned Zack Snyder, who just puts there's the nine song inch in. nails in there. That's just right in your face. It puts you know, the, it, that's the thing. They're right in your face, but they're also manipulated, played with. It's not just like straight up playing the song. It's it's breaking it up. It's reversing it a little bit. It's uh, intercutting, making it jittery. It's it's wonderful. There's so much care behind that. I love it. Oh. Nick, seeing as though you're a big fan of this score, do you know when Crease uh, is firing the rocket out of the pulled person's house? <laughs> yes. There, there's a certain uh, bit of music that plays there that I've heard that sample from somewhere. Excuse me. I've heard that sound. Sorry, I just trying to throw up. Um, I've heard that been sampled somewhere before. Where is that from? Let me see if I can find it. I have the soundtrack downloaded. There's a certain like noise, that, 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 or obviously, but there's a certain <laughs> type of uh, motif that the, the song plays. I, I was like, oh wow, I've heard that somewhere before, but I could never put a finger on it. If you can get the clip and play it, I can hear it because I don't know what the song would be called. I've heard it before. I was like, I want to know where that's from. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm trying to look for the Nine Inch Nails songs in there, and then because there's one. From downward the downward spiral, I think, or maybe it's maybe it's closer even. I, I'm not a massive fan of Nine Inch Nails. I will say they're they're. Uh... I used to when when this thing was around. This thing was mm. around because it's a very sort of like when you're like if you, if you were at the time like 19 or 20, this is like yeah, Nine Inch Nails is your aesthetic, yeah. <laughs> and it's also like some of the Nine Inch Nails music used here is very reminiscent of the John Wick soundtrack. No, but there's these. I will find this, but, but you know, there's there are these moments in there that are just. Um, he uses nine inch nails to underscore character moments. Yeah, well, which is because you, you, I don't know. When you think nine inch nails, you think like David Fincher's seven opening. That's pretty much you know like the I wanna fuck you like you know like that's that's the sort of. Um, that that's what you think when you when you think Nine Inch Nails, but he just uses like <laughs> Trent Reznor's sort of music as like a ten, to a background to a tender moment between R- Radha Mitchell and Denzel Washington when they're just like, oh, I found your Bible. Oh yeah, you keep that because you you might gonna you might want to need it now. Like it's <laughs> it's just like the weirdest place to put Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> and, and when they yeah. go to the club, they have the they have the wrecking for a dream. Clint Mansell music playing remixed. Oh, remixed, yes. <laughs> it's just like, it's just... Every time, like even second time, I was like, they're playing the remix of Clint Mansell. Sure. But I'm telling you, this is Tony Scott telling people, it's like, 
I want this in here, but why, Tony? It's not, it doesn't work. Fuck this! This is gonna be amazing. <laughs> yeah, and then you have Pavarotti singing in another moment. It's like, sure, go for it. It's eclectic. I, lo- I love that. I love eclectic soundtracks. Just a bit of everything. Just and it, it never. It's it's never too jarring as well. It's not like it takes you out of the movie. It's so weird. It's 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 calculated. It's <laughs> By the way, speaking of, like I was watching this, and I've never really clicked on, with, especially with older Tony Scott. I mean, not, uh, not with older films of his, but more more sort of later stuff. The second unit must have gotten quite a lot of work to do, because there's a shit ton of insert shots, and I don't think this was something that Tony would have would have supervised himself. This would be something like, you know, what I like, but I want I want a montage of of scenes where people open and close bags. And then reload weapons in a in a warehouse. Go. <laughs> and there's like three months of pickups in a warehouse somewhere in the middle of fucking Pasadena. I don't know. It's just ridiculous because I don't suppose they are they were all shot on location because was this would have kind of cost quite a bit more coin to to make, right? But yeah, this warehouse is just... easy to cheat. <laughs> Not to talk about the, all of the aerial shots of Mexico City at just different times of day. It's always the same area. I, I think they just... Like the tall uh, building. And that's they, it. they hired a helicopter for a day and that yes. was it. <laughs> around just for three hours during the golden hours. Just wait for it. Okay, we're done for the day. That's it. Yeah, and then they, they had the helicopter rigged with like a normal camera, the, like a high-speed camera and something else because they would have these sort of um, speed ramping moments when you have this sort of the steeple somewhere and just like rotates very quickly as in I ca- at some point I'm just thinking is Tony Scott afraid that Michael Bay is aping him and he wants to be one step ahead of the game so be- so that he-, he would be seen as like no I'm the original recipe in here this guy is just a kid who's trying to do what I'm doing and now he's just you know did this doing- come out after b- 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 Bad Boys 2 Oh, oh, maybe probably yes. Same year. One year after. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm just thinking: is this, is this, is this purposeful yeah. in that way, or is it, or he, or does he just, or did he just think this was cool to thing to do? Because I'm, I want to believe that he, he just want that wanted this aesthetic to be cool. That he just felt that that you know, like these young whippersnappers are fucking on his case every now and again, like Simon West and Dominic Cena, Senna. So I don't know, the swordfish guy. I swear to God, I've had a stroke. When I when I listened to it last night, I could hear this this sample, and I'm I'm watching it back now, and I and it's just not the same thing. You didn't listen to it late. Let me hold on. Send me a link. I, I might as well share my screen. Let's play I've this. Got it. It's it's not. It's just not this. Let's do it that way. Because I think if I if I let you share my screen, then. I think though I don't know it kind it's of goes, goes weird. Just the piano when he's when he's waiting to fire. It. Can also say I was looking at the Italian name of the film and it's called Men on Fire: The Fire of Vengeance. <laughs> Is that what you wanted? The uh... that's it. Yeah, the piano work in it. It feels like it's from something else. Oh, that's from that's from a beautiful scene. Just I'm just here yeah. to arrange a meeting. The thing he does with his mouth as well. If, if you go back, um, yeah, just a, a little bit. Oh. You play a bit louder. I play on that thing a bit louder. Because there's a when the when the piano starts to rise, that's from that's from something else as well. 
this bit. Before before he does the with his mouth, that mm -hmm. rise of the piano, it goes dun 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 dun. Like it feels like it's from like a film I've, I've listened to or something that's famous. Because it's a very fam I, I don't want to sound like I'm patronizing, but but it's like a familiar chord progression. As in, like this is this is something that I would I would definitely hear in like Hans Zimmer scores. Yeah, that's what I'm just trying to think if I've heard it before. Great also, scene. I don't want to know what happens next. <laughs> well, you've seen this a million I know, times. I'm joking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I'm, I wouldn't know what else to say really now. What about the music or about the film in general? Um, probably about both. Oh, Jesus, really? I'm, I'm hanging on like a thread here. I feel like I'm going to die. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I will just say, speaking, speaking of this scene, it's kind of crazy to think that the biggest set piece in the entire movie is him using a rocket launcher. But there's, there aren't many And the club goes up. Anyway. Yeah, what no, that's, that's, that's the thing. Because it's, it's re well, in, in smaller circles, it's revered as this action, a big action film, revolutionary even for some. But then if mm -hmm. you're watching, it's like, yeah, it's, it's not subdued per se, but it's... Well, there's... it's toned down compared to what we've become used to. Like, I, th I think doing the same thing in the eighties could have been, would have been way different, very more action heavy. Well, there, it the was original. done in the eighties. It was called Commando. Yes, <laughs> I will say it's it a better <laughs> film. <laughs> I think, considering like it's violent, so I actually think it's quite like it never jumps the shark. Well, there's never a moment hmm. where he gets in a helicopter and like you know just burns everyone down, blows them away like Rambo. Well, he doesn't. Like, he 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 does. He spares people. He spares people like the fucking, um, you know, one-liners like "Let off some steam, Bennett." Mm -hmm. <laughs> like here, cool off. <laughs> so time for one-liners. <laughs> uh, no, I, mean, I wish there was a version like that. But there's like in terms of set pieces, there's there's the kidnapping. Like the the ransom is not even a set piece because it's kind of like re retold. In yeah, in like a montage of some description, right? There's All the lock, the rocket launcher. There's no, the club. There's exploding. The, there's the club, and then there's the final um, or the brother, because and the rest is mm. epilogue, right? Which is we haven't really touched much about, uh, on on the ending, but I kind of feel like I watched this this time, and I shit you not, I cried. Yeah, I was close. Oh, the first time around, really I did. First time, yeah, like a couple of weeks ago, yeah. It's like, it's a ride. It's I don't know because you, you you think to yourself like especially when I like how they establish that he's violent and he doesn't re like in the club he just wastes one guy he just like blows him away and says so your turn to speak right <laughs> so you know you're just okay well he so when when they when you see the guy's pregnant wife and you're like I'm not even sure what he's gonna do now <laughs> right like I don't yeah what is he gonna I mean I've seen this before but it's, it, you kind of just feel like he's a loose cannon now like you you don't know right? you're on edge yeah but then in the very end when they actually play well, when he goes to the bridge for the exchange and you see Dakota Fanning and then they meet at the bridge and he gives her this one last hug and then he goes there to the car and I, this is a brilliant decision not to follow through with like explosion in the house because <laughs> you can only imply what happens because you can maybe know from like um, Reddit or wh wherever 
what cartel people do to people who who cross them right this is not just he's that he's going to get executed this is days of torture he's facing right um so it's harrowing it's, it's almost like he's he's like a biblical sort of martyr almost like it's amazing mm. this it's it's played so well by the way and you know there, there's only one weird decision that i don't understand where they put like john w creasy and then there's yes. like state of birth and i was, gonna, I was like, gonna save that for my bottom, not a real sorry, person so. Jesus. And then it just cuts to Giannini just shooting somewhere it's like okay that's the voice he, that's the killing. No, yeah, sorry, yeah. No, <laughs> just like, that's, that's like a nice sorry. wrap up at the end. Just that he died, and it was much. I was reading the quick skimming, not reading. I was skimming the script for the film, and it's much longer the epilogue. Really? Like the entire, it's a proper scene with Giannini just entering and talking and shooting the guy. It's not because it, that's honestly that's really the only thing I don't like about the film. It's the final <laughs> it's, it's fifteen like, seconds. It's almost like a joke. Yes, <laughs> but then what's I don't know. I know this is earnest, but at some point I kind of feel this is like a cruel joke. You just spent two and a half hours in New in Mexico City, right? Yes, but, yes. and then it's just like to Mexico City. It's a brilliant place. <laughs> All the wonderful that. people, <laughs> wonderful people. Like some of them are kidnappers, but food <laughs> amazing, right? <laughs> just, okay. Labor very cheap. I mean, like Jesus, like no, there's time and place, Tony, and this is not it. <laughs> That's that didn't age well. It's unfortunate. <laughs> That's the type of thing you put at the end credits, not in deep. But so does the film yeah, end. It, can, it does feel like it, it does feel like damage control. It really does feel like damage control. It's kind of like, well, we did portray you in a very negative way, probably, but just so you know, we love spending time here. Please don't kill us. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. It's just I, I don't know. But but the I, ending in in general, the, the reunification of Dakota Fanning with her mother, and then him going to the car, and these these grim grim people just waiting on him, just like yeah, to, I don't know. Like you just almost half expect him, them to kill them, kill him on the spot, but then they don't, and you're just like, right, oh shit, like this is gonna get real bad. Yeah, it's a very the, well put together scene, and it's interesting. We talked about the studios, producers, how they might have reacted to this film. I find it fascinating that they didn't try to push Crazy Surviving because this is a... For a sequel. Well, this is a big-ish spoiler, but in the first movie, and which is actually like the, the movie is the first 1987 movie mm-hmm. based on the book. Both are set in Italy. They're not set well, in Mexico or anything. Well, because the, the book, I think, is mo- almost directly inspired by the J. Paul Getty kidnapping, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And in that one, he, he, he has a fake death. Where they, they think his dad is like in the hospital oh, bed, and they just carry him away. And then he's like, oh, no, but he's actually alive. And he's going on for adventures. I think there's like five or six books with Creasy as a main character written by Quinnell. Because his and character so- is, is like, he's like, what's his face? The Lee Child character. Oh. Forgetting. Well, I've never read Lee Child actually. Oh, no, no, wait. What, no, what was? What is it? What Tom Cruise plays him? Jack Reacher. Jack, Jack Reacher. Reacher. Yes. Yes. This is kind of, he's kind of like that because he appears in like many other books, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a proper series. It's a that's what's shocking <laughs> me because I opened Goodreads. I was like, I kind of want to read the Men on Fire book. It was like John Creasy book number one. Yeah. There's, <laughs> what? There's like a whole <laughs> shit ton of them, and I, I don't. I I can't. I'm not gonna be 
pretending that I'm not, that I'm just smart or anything, but I look at these books and I'm just thinking these books are probably most of them are probably not very good. And 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 maybe <laughs> in the future months might be discussed the first one in some <laughs> way the, or but form. But the Man on the Fire podcast. book that's his first book ever, by the way. I'm excited about the writing on that. So you, you know what you know what they say: you have your whole life to write your first book, and then you so have to and then you have to strong. pick up the pace. <laughs> but but yeah, it's it's fascinating. I, this could have been the equalizer, honestly. Like yeah. if they didn't kill him off, this could have been the equalizer. Could have got a new Denzel action movie every three years. Well, I think they, equalizer. They yeah, good it's, for them. Well, how I don't know this. I'd rather watch another crazy movie. Well, no, actually, no. No, this would be like Jack Reacher. And it's like all of a sudden you you just have like you'd actually have to go into the detail of like, oh, what are these sort of scars? And do you want to know how I got these scars? <laughs> <laughs> well, my father was a drinker and a fiend. <laughs> no, but it, it, I don't know. It, it would have undercut the the character. I think the way this it's it's self contained. It's much better because it's. A lot of stuff is half on the page, half implied, and it's left for the for the viewer to actually make an active decision whether they care or not about about following this up in their head, and then maybe pausing at because like, they flick through the guy's file and you can see oh CIA this, Navy SEALs that, so you can actually just the material's there on the page. It's just you don't have to care. But if you make five sequels out of this, like you'd have to build this character into something, and then all these wrinkles. All these character wrinkles that are just implied, they would actually come in handy, which is fa- something I fucking hate. Like when you have this sort of narrative hooks, as in like, well, uh, the, oh, he has migraines, or I don't know, he just practices to a metronome, and then or or just throws knives just to you know calm himself down. Of course, there's gonna be a scene where he where he saves the day by throwing a knife, right? So, but none of this is in there. It's just all implied. It's just in. It's just part of the sort of building the tone. An atmosphere and then character as in well building the character for him to interact not for him to enact a plot yeah sorry <laughs> i just like i think when it's actually like revealed about how he got his scars like the, the, the obviously the, the red laser is the same size as the it's obviously a bullet wound i think it's really really good exposition like it's it's visual non dialogue exposition that's really well handled was it meant to be a bullet wound yeah because the, yeah. the, the red laser is the exact size at, of the bullet wound at the, at the in the very last scene when he's on the bridge and you see the dot on his and chest and he just has his hand like this and just rides over his uh, hand oh, okay. but yeah well, but this, I, this I'm, is influenced by the, the, I'm influenced by the movie the other one because in that one he was like <laughs> oh no I was I got tortured and they burnt I mean, cigarettes on my like hand that. But this is something because it that, looks more uneven. Well, yeah, but then it doesn't matter ultimately. This is something for you to think about. Or something terrible happened to him. Maybe someone shot. Him. But then, no, but no one cares to explain, and that makes it better. Yeah, you know, it's like in a in a shittier version of this film, you'd have a sex scene between between Rachel Ticotin and Giancarlo uh, Giannini because they they imply it's like oh. Because he he's really after her, he wants to have sex with her, and then she's like, "We don't we don't sleep together, we fuck." Like I'm like, well, but this is a Tony Scott film. I want to see like I want to see the curtains fly. <laughs> I mean, do, <laughs> you know, do, do, you do, know, do rather Mitchell wishes. Yeah, don't they don't, don't they cut two sex scenes in this? One between uh, the Ray Mosses and one between Creasy and uh, uh, 
and Radha Mitchell, I hope you yeah, want to that, say. That, that's that's been cut out, yeah. <laughs> Why? Do you think it was a Dakota Fanning? <coughs> for some reason, I thought, like, are you going to say Dakota Fanning? Please don't say Dakota Fanning. No, no, I, just, I couldn't remember it. Um, but the, um, i tell you what, what interests me, and this is just a personal point, how does Giancarlo Giannini look older in Hannibal than he does in this? Through makeup. Well, well, just... well, yes, Nick. It's, it's, it's the same year or just a year after? Couple no, of years. Hannibal's two thousand and one. Two thousand and one. Jesus. Boy. <laughs> I will um, say this. He did Casino Royale only two years after this. Yeah. It's just. It's... A, I don't know. It's just makeup. I think. No, I know. I was just taking the piss. But yeah. Well, well, one uh, of my pet peeves is using Giancarlo Giannini for non-Italian roles. I'm Mexican in this one. And but he's Venezuelan he, but in he's, this he's, Italian. he's Italian in this. He says he's from the Rome division. Yeah, because he's from yes. Interpol, right? <laughs> and and his name is Nick, Manzano. Come on. Did you even watch this film? But it's Miguel. No one's named Miguel. I'll tell you the one thing. Well, that like, no one, no one's last name is Manzano either. Right? <laughs> I don't like it. Don't use Giannini. Well, he's old now, so they're not using him anymore. I'll tell Just, you it's, what. He's done that like many times, even in the Ken Reeves film, Walking the Clouds. Oh. I think even in Casino Royale, he's not Italian. He's another thing. I will say one thing about this Let film that we haven't spoken well, that's about. That's just Hollywood thing. Just as, He's not character actor. So if you He's want French someone... in that one. <laughs> <laughs> if you want on. someone with a, with, with a vague European accent, then just hire him. Like, you know... Uh... Didn't have didn't have the sort of gravitas to punch through like Christopher Waltz did. It reminds me of the, uh, the actor in, um, yeah. It reminds me of the actor in Angels and Demons. Um, what, what's his name? Wasn't that Armin, him again? No, Armin Muller style. Like who? Who the? Like his? Like I don't know. Cardinal Strauss. Like he plays like every European character. Like he's in Eastern Promises. He plays Vincent um, Cassel's father in it. Oh. He's like um, he's like in loads of films where he just plays the European. I'll tell you one thing that surprised me here. There's, a, there's, a, there's an actor in this film that I'd seen before, but I've never seen again. He looks very different. Mickey Rourke. I, I don't know if I've ever seen him performing. Like what, Mickey again. Rourke? Well, I've never seen him look like that after this. Well, because that was the, like, this and Domino was like the tail end of him kind of looking vaguely like a human. Yeah, I mean, it shows the boxing, doesn't it? I mean, it kind of does. Like, he's, he's fucking mangled in whichever way you slice it. But, you know. Well, it's, just, it's, it's real hair. It's just, it's just shockingly. But it was, real, it was an it? interesting decision to, to hire him as well, because if you think about this, his character like, is introduced as inconsequential. He's just a lawyer. But then because it's Mickey Rourke, you kind of ex- expect that, okay, Something's good. Like he's he he must be important. Like no, no one would would cast Mickey Rourke for just like a three minute just fucking jack off lawyer or whatever. He's instantly shamed. Would, would it would it have any connection that with his participation in this film, um, which is the only film he did this year, and he'd worked with Robert Rodriguez the year before in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, he was cast in Sin City. I mean, um, potentially. But I suppose be, be, without without him him being in this film, he wouldn't have been in Domino. What did I, yeah, uh, I think I've answered my own question. I think it's more to do with uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico and Robert Rodriguez, but there was definitely like a spark for a few years. And then he got to Stormbreak, which we will not talk about. Um, and then the wrestler. Yeah, and I think I think it <laughs> stops there. Um, but before that, I mean, you've just got nothing. I mean, the pledge he's in with, with the, you know, the... Um, Sean Penn film with uh, Jack Nicholson, which I think. Well, but didn't like, he didn't he go through like a 
rehab or something. Well, I mean, like he he did he he made decisions, make you off. Like he's in Animal Factory and he plays an interesting character. And he's in Get Cast. I don't know why. Is it, I think, but yeah, he's in Buffalo '66. Fucking hell. Yeah, there's. De- I mean, the Rainmaker with um again oh, Coppola's Coppola. There's with, definitely with like, young Matt Damon. <laughs> yeah, I don't even remember Danny DeVito. There's some really strange from 1990. It's just it's not good. A Man of Fire, I don't think is an exemplary performance by him. It's 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 very much what his his shtick was. Animal Factory, Get Carter, um, The Pledge. It's small. a very secondary character. Yeah, as well. in, I can barely again, remember he's in the film. Yeah, he, he's there for a paycheck, but I think that there are, there are people helping him, him out. I just wondered mm-hmm. what the, the Tony Scott and him connection was. I wonder if that had anything to do with Rodriguez and Tarantino, but I don't think he's ever, well, he worked with him after, didn't he? But I don't think he ever worked with him before. Did I? Am I wrong here? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's mm-hmm. difficult to say. But, <laughs> I don't know. It, it is definitely interesting that that he that he's in here for some reason. But no, when you like, I'm trying to look at his personal life on Wikipedia, and I'm like, you know, what's rough? I mean, like, he's he's the only person on, who's under personal life on Wikipedia has a subheading dogs because he uh, apparently well, apart, I don't know, he's very he very much into dogs. <laughs> is this a lifestyle or a sexual gratification? Point. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I don't know. He's apparently an, a dog activist of some description, and also, and, also, and if you go into early nineties, he's also a wife beater. So, oh God. also that. known as dog lover, wife beater. But What's the le- resume? He has led a colorful life. <laughs> I think I think he's grown as well. Doesn't seem like someone who's still doing. I don't know him personally, of course, but I'm just going off public perception. I think experiences like this they kind of shape you into 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 a something, right? Yeah, I mean, I think his performance as paralyzed man in Man of God that was released this year will give him some plaudits, I'm sure. But uh, I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> what? I just think Mickey Mickey Rock became an actor that. Um, actor, the directors wanted to seriously give a second chance because there was something like Rumblefish still in the in the loins waiting to get out, and unfortunately, I think that time had severely passed. But again, he's he's effective here; he doesn't have anything to do. But this film, aside from the main dynamic that I spoke before, everyone's just side side players anyway. You know, they're ultimately just small parts of the puzzle. Um, and I think he does fine. I think he's fine. I mean, there's but there's a difference. I don't know. Like if you look at Mickey Rock, I remember him from like Barfly or Nine and a Half Weeks, or like he used to be like a sex symbol, and now he looks like Donatella Versace. It's just okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it, it, there's a journey somewhere in there, and and I think in 2004 he was just like this is the last glimpse. Well, he but, went back to boxing, didn't he? he? Went back to boxing, and he he had loads of he did um, yeah, yeah cosmetic surgery on his face. I mean, he was still boxing a few years ago. Well. I mean, well, someone like should have told him, like, like yeah. maybe not, you shouldn't be boxing, Mickey, because you get you, you get your face mangled every weekend. Like, this I'm is not, not okay. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shame anyone here, and, I, and, I, and perhaps this this may not stay in, but I just think that as a, as a male, it's there's a, a very much difficulty in accepting when one goes bald, um, and the fact yeah. that this man wears wigs to the extent that he does, and they are grey and pink, and I just think I think, I think they used he, to be. 
now it's a bit different. Like the Bold Brotherhoods, you know, is coming out strong. Like this no, is, Mickey, you know, but Mickey Rock came from an era in the, in the late seventies and the 80s, specifically the eighties, where he was the James Dean of his generation. And I, I yeah. think that's I know I, not not obviously to the heights, but that that manifest manifestation of stoicism and and internal grief. That I mean, Rumblefish is an exa- is a wonderful example of it. Uh, but he, he came at a point where I think that his looks were ultimately a detriment to his career, that he was one day going to lose them and then effectively lose his talent, which in hindsight was probably not the case. But I think it goes back to, to how fractured he was and perhaps how insecure he was as a performer. Wow. And, um, and you look at now, it's, it's, it's a really sad case of it, but um, it's just when you look at someone like Mickey Rock and not particularly this film, Look at Denzel. Like there, there isn't, there's, they're able to sort of transcend the medium because they're able to do other things. Like Mickey Rock, Rock, there must, there must have been a chance one day for him to do a musical or do a comedy. Mm-hmm. You know, no, but then Mickey Rock in contrast to someone like Denzel Washington, Mickey Rock uh, was like, well, as you said, he started his career as the sort of young James Dean, sort of the young handsome leading man sort of character right and this is something i kind of heard on a different i think podcast some years ago i can't remember who this was about maybe mel gibson but then when you think about are we we sure are we sure we want to do this no no it's just because uh, in terms of (laughs) actors who are let's just say maybe self-conscious about because they they were when they were young they were cast predominantly because of the way they looked and mm-hmm. then they kind of just cultivated this sort of like when you think about young Mel Gibson with his long hair and lethal weapon he was definitely uh, considered let's call him a sex symbol right he was a very very sort of desirable young man right what women want <laughs> yeah <laughs> well weirdly enough but um but no but then Mickey Rock was was kind of I would argue the same way Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I think um, the the, the, par- the parallels very much in tune. Yeah. And then now I think about that. Normally, when if you imagine yourself as a sort of young and handsome man, like you will get to get old, and then the only thing you will have to as a sort of document of this will be your own photographs, or maybe on your Facebook or whatever. But this will be kind of more or less private. The guy's aging process is right on display in films. So every time he wants to feel like an absolute pile of shit. He might, he has what he has to do is put on angel heart, and then look in the mirror and see the difference. This is devastating psychologically to some, to people who would have who, whose careers they would have been. So if they would have been told from the very young age that they, their looks is what they're what's going to get them places, and now they see the difference, right? Because they see the thirty years of aging, you know, in here, and they see what they used to look like, and they they don't fancy what they see now. So they will put wigs on and they will just put fucking just chemicals in their face to 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 look different, right? Um, and messes with you. So I may I don't I don't I don't know him, but then I would I would expect that maybe there is a, there is an there is an element of this sort of the, well I don't want to call it vanity, but this this sort of uh, the element of this sort of self consciousness kind of baked into the, the idea of being a young um, sort of handsome sexy actor and then just well now seeing yourself as 30 years later and then you know with your face mangled by like fucking boxing bouts and whatever and just like it's probably not good for your self-esteem i'll say this right and, and this comes from a very personal point of view so please indulge me if i was mickey rock and and and, and let's not beat around the bush here mickey rock is an incredibly insane 
insanely talented performer. His filmography shows that if that's in his earlier work or his later work in Aronofsky's The, the Wrestler, he's capable. I, th- I think first and foremost, I think he should have been, I think he should, probably should have won the Academy Award for The Wrestler. That, 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 that's another conversation entirely. Did I he think, not? No, 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 no. He, he didn't know. He won the BAFTA because he, weirdly he, uh, he accepted it and, and thanked Who won Richard, the uh, Oscar then? I think it's Sean Penn, isn't it? For, for Milk? Yeah, mm. I'm pretty sure it is. Bastard. When he won the BAFTA, he, he said, uh, I wanted to thank Richard, what's his name, who, the Irishman, the, uh, who was fucking Dumbledore. Richard Harris. Yeah, yeah, Richard Harris. He, like, he was just, it was a very strange thing that he did. When he came out, he said some things about Sean Penn, which I don't think he's allegedly um, said that, you know, like... Um, he pretended to. He did, did a very good job of pretending to be a gay man. Plus, he's the most homophobic man I know, which I think is quite funny. Um, I'll, I'll look, my, my point is this: is that I think once you get to the point where you've 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 showcased your ability, I think it's the time where you have to stop. And and, and weirdly enough, once you stop, you will gain traction. If he can, if he if he did a wrestler, and he said, "I'm not going to do anything for anyone and any everything again." If you want me, you come to me. I, you, I've shown you my ability. You don't have to publicly address this, but you can definitely put it out there. I think he, if he came out and said, if you want me and you want my talent, you come get me. I'm not going to make B-rate films that are going to premiere a red box. If you want me and you want my ability, I'm here. Come talk to me. And I think we would have a very different Mickey Brock now. But the fact of the matter is that these people, very much like the 70s Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, they don't understand when to say no because they have nothing else in their caliber except for to perform. They know nothing else. These people could not go out in the daily average life and go work at Costco because they can't fucking intertwine with reality. Like, it's just a fact of nature for these people. I, I, I can fully understand why Al Pacino wants to do Jack and Jill. I can understand why Robert De Niro, has, specifically Bruce Willis, has let people down over the years. Because there becomes a point where it's easier to do the, the minimal in, in an average an average job in, in what you're comfortable than doing anything else in life. I just think Mickey Rock had a decision to make to, to make a film like fucking like what like. Well, there's also the fact that you know money's nice to have. That, that's that, that's enough. We're talking about an Academy Award nominated performer. I don't think that man is, is scarce of money, let's say. Well, you say that, but then like, do you remember these these times when Nicolas Cage had to just take shitty jobs somewhere because know, that, he was man, actually out buying, of money? Yeah, but that man's buying a fucking dinosaur skull. Well, yeah, but then that's all what, what they all do. Like, they have these oh, massive houses, expensive. and then when they realize, it's like, oh, yeah, I've been working for like three um, years, and they realize they pay like $50,000 a year for electricity, right? Do you know, do you know who we won um, that bidding war with against the dinosaur head? No, Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Again, just back to my point. It's just I find Mickey Rock a very interesting, um, a very interesting uh, character study. I will say he's okay here. Again, I, I, I've said this before. I think all supporting characters do that justify the weight, but I think he's far better in Domino. I think he has a really good part in Domino. I think actually. Uh, Watching this and forgetting he was even in this, like Nick said, I don't I didn't even realize he was in this, to be honest. Yeah, it is one of my negatives, which we'll be talking about later, though. I've got a lot yeah. to talk about that character. And I don't know. And in terms of like weird, there, there's, there's a few weird things that, okay, well, 
it's difficult to for me to kind of just take this film apart in general and just say oh, I see it doesn't work. But there are there are things like Mark Antony's character has has these sort of weird sort of um, he has this fucking just shrine in the house. It's it's and the lady the yeah, and then like there's 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 there are things kind of woven into it that, that are just a bit weird. Um but yeah, I don't know. Like I'm, like I'm, I'm out of, I'm out of gas on, on like, uh, because I think I've touched on everything I, w- I wanted to touch. Unless you, there's something you guys want to quickly. Uh... I will say, I, I find it interesting you bring up that because, excuse <coughs> me. So I'm just uh, rejecting your hypothesis. Oh my! <laughs> so, um, you, I, so you're, you're a fan of a uh, lady of the Mary of the Guadalupe. <laughs> I think there's a lot of like terminology that's presented that's slightly like Santa Muerte. Yeah, there's there's, def- there's definitely a lot of terminology that, that the average audiences are not going to necessarily understand, but I get the implication. I think religion is very much a part of these people's lives. I think it's actually quite a generous and mm-hmm. organic thing for Tony Scott to implement that in the film. He never took. I can understand there's a lot. There's a lot there, and it's and it's all very surface level but i'm just glad it's represented and then again religions and faith is an incredibly interwoven theme in this film for creaser so it's interesting that we have someone finding their faith through through the bible and we have another person who is on the other side who is going through the same issues of faith but going down into into the pits of despair i think Mm -hmm. it works thematically i think it works narratively but i can understand when people would say it's I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying you're knocking. I just I understand what you're, you're trying to say. I think. I mean, I mean, I don't want to say it's too much, and because it, it kind of weaves itself into the themes very well. So it's like it's very difficult to actually take it apart on these grounds anyway. Like when you have the Saint Jude, patron of lost causes, it kind of just. I don't want to say use the cliche that it turns the film into like a biblical parallel of any kind, but it kind of does work on this level as well. Like oh, there's yes. this, the mysticism and spiritualism is in there, which basically just I totally forgot to bring this up, and I kind of did. Which brings me to the bullet, mm-hmm. which kind of makes it well not hyper real almost. It makes it magically realistic, right? Because the bullets, fa- well, it's not fake, but the bullets uh, faulty, right? So, and he just says to him, "Well, you figure it out." This, the, the the bullet is the um, the hand of God. Like if if you're supposed to survive, you'll survive. If you're not, then you're not. Then you won't. So it's so it's interesting that way because it kind of just takes the film out of the sort of groundedness into the sort of mystical plane of some like the revenge is almost biblical now it's it's a it's interesting that way but yeah one one extra thing i wanted to kind of add before before i'm totally out of gas is that i appreciate the fact um that they which is also probably running against what the fox people would be like oh my goodness this is not gonna make us money because a lot of stuff is done in spanish with subtitles like they got they got Denzel to to speak Spanish, and in certain scenes so to kind of preserve certain sort of modicum of realism. I like that. that Not way. only that, but like, did, 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 I, I thought it was quite funny when um, Rachel to to quote him and um, Giancarlo Giannina are walking in the um, in like uh, the building. They're like <laughs> they have to subtitle Giancarlo Gianni speak English when he says yeah. assassins. Like he ha- they have to subtitle because you don't know what he's saying. I thought it was quite funny, but. <laughs> I will say this about your point earlier about the uh, the biblical nature. I think that's a conscious decision because it gets to the point where there are certain things that happen in this film 
that when it's grounded in reality, you can't necessarily defend. When he gets shot in the chest in its third act, that's game over. That's mm-hmm. like, a, like, like with the valves everywhere, he's gone. And I think they have to incorporate that idea of the, of the spiritual faith, biblical, whatever you want to call it, motif into that film to ultimately give that a bit more weight and, 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 and not let it sort of suffocate or drown in its own, um, you know, idea of what, what reality is or how grounded it is. That would be my only defence. Not that I would defend it. I just think that would be the only reason why they would do it. I'm not sure I'm attacking it. I'm actually no, no, I, no think... I don't think you are. I, think you are. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, like, like, the more I think about this, the, the more I think Daniel, like, Creasy works as an allegory for Jesus as well. Like he has like um he has uh, um stigmatas on his hands okay, and then yeah. and then he uh gives himself up to save uh the sort of the innocence of the world. Like it you know it works on these sort of multiple sort of levels. I, I know it's I don't want to say it's probably coddled up on uh, coupled up on 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 this spot as as the script was coming together. But I think it's a very there is a very strong sort of undercurrent of spiritualism in there and i think this it, it comes together as well especially when you think about what the what the girl represents in this context and then and there's these there's the tra- there's the traitorous people sort of surrounding this whole thing so there's you know like the, the uh, you, you could actually just pinpoint biblical characters yeah. and then just uh, assign or well, label certain characters like this is judas this is this <laughs> you know <laughs> so it kind of works on that on that level and not completely so it's not like okay well this is definitely what they meant but it, you know you could f- convince yourself that there is a there is a level of uh, biblical reading that you could apply to it and it will make sense you could you could convince yourself that there is a 1500 word essay somewhere in there on that don't get me started um i will say <laughs> though do you think this is the most uh, uh, well on that term do you think this is the the most um, religious undertone film that, uh, that Tony Scott has made? Possibly. With the hunger. Well, the hunger is a bit different, right? The, the, the hunger was what? He was 20 years younger as well. <laughs> yeah. Which is bizarre anyway, because he wanted to make this film. He wanted to adapt this book in 1983. <laughs> I honestly cannot imagine who they would have gotten with the cast well the, the original is insane probably kevin costner this would be this would have been what the revenge is right yeah but yeah i don't too know early for him maybe it, it was a good idea that he didn't do it when he was super young so kind yeah. of this, yeah this film proves one point excuse me you don't have to be a young man with fire in the loins to make an epic. You can be sixty, you can be seventy, and, well, and his brother. How old has proved, was he? I think he's in his fifties. But as his brother has proved at the, age of eight, at the age of eighty-three, you can make as long as you have the fire in your belly, you can craft epics regardless of age. That's one thing I think this film also proves about age does not matter if you're behind the camera. Well, as long as, age- well, as, long as you know your stuff. Uh, we spoke about walk. this last week. Age does matter. It's just like these are these are these people are exceptions. <laughs> in what in what way would you counter that then? I mean, like, I don't know how. Well, it's easy to to argue. I think it's easier to argue your case because you don't hear about people who are unsuccessful in their seventies because well, they don't play. make shit. Yeah, right? no, so it's. So you see, there's the bias. Toward, there's this bias towards success because you hear about the Scorseses, you hear about the Ridley Scotts, and 
Well, touch wood, <laughs> Woody Allen's or Clint Eastwood, another one like like these octogenarians who are just. To still be fair, at though, it. I think Clint Eastwood's an interesting one because Clint Eastwood has technically made duds. Well, but they're all pre- now they're all prestige films with some sort of awards appeal, or is this just like he's ninety? Come on, let's see his film. <laughs> Wait. Might be the last one. It might be the oh, last one, Nicholas, but you know. Bloody hell. It's so fucking dark. <laughs> if but, it, we, we, we did, but you, we have you seen what he this. looks like nowadays? Like he's he's getting there. Like, come on. Like he, we, but, we watched The Mule the other day, my mom and my grandma, and um, my grandma didn't know who he was. Not that she's <laughs> ill or anything. She just couldn't recognize him. She was like, Who is that? I was like, it's Clint Eastwood. Like, no, it's not. I was like, Yeah, it's Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Well, I, mean, he, understandable. I mean, he he is like in, intertwined in, in the zeitgeist. Like, you should probably uh, listen to the uh, Joe Rogan episode when he had Scott Eastwood on. Yeah, he's done the boys on twice, isn't he? Um, yeah, but he he would he would talk about uh, his dad, right? And then bear in mind, like Scott Eastwood is like, I want to say two years younger than I am. He's so not he's fifty-eight. Really? Is he? No, he's 30, 35, right? I'm gonna so say, he, no, he's, he's not fifty-eight. I don't know. No, but then imagine that this. Yeah. His 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 Clint Eastwood had him when he was sixty, right? <laughs> so so you know, so I don't know. So like his what relationship he has with his dad is a little bit different, right? <laughs> but um, but yeah, I don't know. Like to 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 my point, I I suppose it's easier to kind of just convince yourself that you know it's age does not matter because you can find these examples of successful people like. Um, Scorsese, or maybe like I don't know, Schrader or whoever. Um, who are, who are, well, he made first reform when he was how old? How old? 70? Yeah, he also made well, yeah, but, but you can, you, but you can, it's easy to kind of turn your blind eye on to crap. No, that's that's fair, right? It's very easy to sort of buy to 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 buy into this sort of confirmation bias. And then you realize, okay, well, and then there's also a whole sea of things that you don't know because there isn't even a signal to pick up because people who would be 65, they'll, at some, most people would probably say, I'm done, thanks, I'm not happy. I'm happy to live on, on the beach now and then, you know, enjoy myself with this $10 million I have in my bank because it's more than enough that I need. Like, whatever. Like not everyone's really scott that he's still 83 or 84 and he's making two films in one year because and he still probably wants to make an alien film again because because he realizes that he's like if he if he doesn't do it someone's gonna fuck it up i think he's got i think he's got about battle of britain and another film in him or 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 maybe the last duel is his last duel you never know i don't want to talk about that <laughs> I will say this about you. No, I'm not going to say that. Actually. Let's move on. Go on. No, no, go, go on. No. I was just going to. Say, I was just going to. I'm going to say like when you say turn a blind eye to like the dying of the light. I'd rather turn a brown eye to that because it's shit. <laughs> I just, I just think like the fact that I was going to be made with Nicholas Winding Refn and Harrison Ford gives me anxiety. <laughs> yeah, like, that gives me anxiety. And if have you you've seen this new uh, New York version of it, you Nick? I have. Yeah. The dying well, of the light. The, yeah, the, basically the director's cut because Paul Schrader made it and they, they showed what it is, in I think it was like in archives or whatever and people right. wanted to watch it and Schrader was like you know what I'll just put it on torrent sites myself and they right, did because as, I only saw what um, the theatrical version which was I've taken away from him well, right yeah. and then re-edited yes. which is pretty bad but the, actually the, well, the re-edit that he made pretty bad cut. is an understatement uh, let me check what I gave it 
<laughs> expecting Just like in a case 1. it's four stars. Hold on. But the, uh, the director's cut, it's worth watching. It's called Dark. It's called it's worth watching, I think. What did I give it? Oh, one star. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, to, to move back from uh, disappointing nightmares, um, <laughs> I will say that the, the, the iconography of Tony Scott back into the man, the myth, the legend. Um, there's a picture on IMDb of him with his hat on, with his like uh, with his pink shirt on, with a cigar in hand. It's like the the perfect iconography for the man, laid yeah. back, it, 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 at the age of sixty, cigar, just doing what he does with passion. It's my favorite picture of him ever on the set of this film. And this is how he always looks behind the scenes as well. It's it's fascinating to see him work. Have you seen the 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 the, the Val documentary yet, Nick? No, not yet. But I want a, to. There's, I mean, he only worked with him once on Top Gun, Val Kilmer, but he does have twice. Behind his, twice. Well, I guess, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well done, well done, uh, well done. <laughs> um, fair play. Um, Sorry. I, no, no, it's all right. I, I didn't. I didn't remember. Oh, shame. Yeah, no, shame, shame. <laughs> I'm ill. Thanks for blaming me. You know, I'm not off hundred percent. You know, you want to take the piss? You want to take the piss? Um, Are you going to blame it on 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 the on the uh, vaccine now? Yeah, I'm going to blame it on the yeah, I'm going to write to my local council, my local MP. Um, mm. do, you, do you know, like when when you watch that film, I was quite skeptical of how how he would process working with with that director. Obviously, Top Gun being the film it is, mm. and there's not much material on that, but there is a behind the scenes where they're actually in. I believe they're on on the ship and they're getting a, a debrief, and Tony Scott's giving them like a, a conversation. You don't really hear him talk. Val Kilmer's just videoing it, and Tony Scott's literally just sat there. He stood up, but he's walking around with like a, a script screenplay in his hand with a cigar, dressed exactly like he is on the set of Man of Fire. And I was like, I just want to be there. I just want to because because he's a director that you don't necessarily understand his direct directing stance or his style on set. Because I think he's when you when you hear Ridley, Ridley's very much no new no no bullshit. I mean, he's worked with Oliver Oliver Reed. It's like I, I put that tweet out the other day. I find it hilarious. That like Jared Leto's pulling up to the set of House of Gucci, pulling that bullshit. I mean, the man worked with fucking Oliver Reed in the Hellraiser end. You know, the man died on set doing the Hellraiser. Um, you know, uh, manifesto. I think he's seen Bean done everything like that. <laughs> and when you when you but when you think of Toner, you get more of the softer, tender side, which I think comes out in his films a lot more as well. So I'd like, I'd, I'd definitely like to watch some more behind the scenes footage and just hear him talk, um, you know, because I know that when Ridley Scott gets angry, he, he's, his Geordie accent comes out. No, you ever heard that? Mm-hmm. He, no. he talks, he, he talks very normal, very the, the Queen's English, and when he gets loud or something like that, he goes into his his, uh, his Newcastle roots. Oh, the mask is slipping. Yeah, you fat <laughs> bastard! <Yeah>. No, <laughs> what you's gonna do about it? <laughs> I, I i suppose like ridley ridley's sort of directing style is kind of more like he's doing the job right and then he's making sure that everyone's doing a great job and i think everyone's everyone around is kind of like on the same page as in like yes sir we're doing this sir yeah yeah it's like, four, like especially yeah. when you like i don't know if you've listened to mark Maron uh, with matt damon on and he actually talks about like working with ridley on the last duo as well and how how they spare no expense, you know, like how it's like four cameras running on like full coverage and what, and because it really doesn't have time for bullshit. 
he he covers whatever he can cover in one take if you if you want if you can um well he will he's he's not no because they compare compare and contrast to eastwood who would like uh not give matt damon more than one take and he was like you know trying to put on a south african accent for invictus and he was like and he, he knew that Clint isn't like one and done, right? So you, you better get this right in the first go because you're not going to get a fucking duel. What about that one where um, Matt Damon could hear and see ghosts? So I think it was, a, was it a year after? after. Oh, year after. after. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, that, but that was after, right? Year after. Yes, one, one year, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but then like when you think about like Ridley Scott also is kind of a no bullshit guy. But I think he kind of gives people more latitude to kind of just explore their characters a bit more. I tell you what, the be- the best yeah, description, the, the best description of it is that Ridley Scott would be your dad, right? Please don't and make you, him my dad. No, he'd be, and he would be very harsh on you, but you you would know you'd be very militant. But then you would and go Tony's around to your uncle. uncle. Yeah, you go around to Uncle Tony's house, and you'd listen to the Rolling Stones, and he would smoke mm-hmm. a cigar next year. And you'd be like, "Fuck, this is amazing!" Like, I feel like you would have that. Like, you'd still have fun with. Ridley. And then you come back home, and then your dad really gives Uncle Tony a phone call because he's just like, "You're yeah. spoiling my kid." Like, yeah. you don't have kids of your own. Fucking grow up, Tony. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, they've definitely got a, a cinematic dynasty as well with 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 the Ridley sons um, and daughter um, mm-hmm. as well. Um, you don't hear much of Tony's, which is a shame. But no. I think. And the thing is, when you think of those two directors, there's always not necessarily a black sheep of the family, but there's always someone who gets lost. I never felt throughout Tony's filmography he was ever in the shadow of Ridley. Ever. Ever. Really? No, ever. No, never. Tony's his own man. Artistically, I think he's, I don't know, he, he has more personality on display in his films. Like Ridley hides behind artifice more like he hides behind the genre he hides behind the sword and sandal epic that he makes or he whatever um tony wants to make films about cars he makes a film about cars and he's having mm-hmm. fun doing it like that's so he's, he's more tony kind of like rock- out there he wants to make a to- fucking, tony was rocking fucking rolling yeah he, he wants to just make a revenge thriller he just hires denzel washington and has him you know like cut people's fingers off and I mean, put bombs up, up, up their asses. You know, not, just... not that this is my, my destiny as much as I would like it. If I was never going to teach film criticism or, or teach film, uh, the, the, my t- top 10 films to sort of have a discussion on and watch young, young critics a- analyze and, and, and craft a response from, this film would be it. I just think there's so much in the cinematic style that this film wants to project. I think there's so much you can get from this. Again, like you talk about the, the biblical allegory, Jacoba. I think mm-hmm. I think you could you can read that film without that even existing and find something else. Yeah, if you watch it in the eyes of what you've said, I think it works even well. Mm-hmm. The way it works to its own degree, you know, it doesn't stagnate. It has an expression to it. Yeah. No, this, I mean, this totally, film's yeah. incredibly underrated. I mean, are you going to ask a question later? Obviously, you know, well, I'm right. going to ask it very soon because I think we're getting there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, but it, it it is it is right. It, it is true that you know it's it this this film's like to call it just an an action revenge thriller is incredibly reductive. Put this way, so I don't know. Yes, I, 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 yeah, I suppose we're 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 just about on the precipice of of this. I think we're just in the right spot. I think we've discussed this at length. I think we might as well just say our final thoughts on this. Nick, do you want to go first? 
Yeah. Um, let's let's just quickly wrap this up because I think uh, I, I think you know we're, we've done this justice, especially on the sort of high note with Jack just about saying that he wants to use this as a as a pillar of his of of his teaching sort of um, philosophy. I, I I completely agree. This this is a complete film. It has everything that makes a movie a movie. Great script, great acting, great soundtrack, great sound design, great editing, just great everything. Again, like we mentioned, some flaws here and there in, in the narrative. Maybe some scenes could have been cut. Some things drag a little bit. But honestly, it's 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 borderline a perfect film for what it wants to be. And I I thoroughly enjoyed revisiting it twice in the span of two weeks. And I can see myself now re- rewatching it many many times over the years. Um, it's definitely my favorite Ridley, uh, Tony Scott film. <laughs> um, honestly, probably even one of my favorite films now. I've been watched it three times in my life. I, I can, it, and it's, it's so good. It's so, so good. And yeah, I recommend it. It's, it's, it's an uncut gem in, of like the highest level. It's top three for me of the movies we've discussed. Together oh, with oh. Vanishing Point and uh, I don't know. Congo, Congo, baby, <laughs> Congo, Cannonball Run. Run, which I didn't talk about. <laughs> anyway, on, on more positive news, um, I, I think not to, uh, to 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 uh, in any way insult anyone here, but I think calling this an uncut gem might undermine its its, its technical ability. This this is not only a magnum opus of Tony Scott. I think this is a masterpiece. In, in cinematic landscape. This is a genius piece of cinema, and it just so happens to be directed by um, a director who has great passion for, for his technique that isn't, well, both well respected enough to a degree it should be, but also given sort of the way and, 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 and identity that, that the zeitgeist probably is owed um, to him as well. I watch this film every other year and it never fails to impress me. It's one of my favourite films. It's my favourite Tony Scott film by, by well, I mean, we have the discussion, don't be wrong, but it's my favourite Tony Scott film. I like Domino for my personal reasons. I like True Romance. I think, you know, I like Deja Vu, so on and so forth. I like Unstoppable. But this is peak cinema at its finest. It is built at a time where they got away with so much. And I'm not even talking about the R rating. I'm talking about running time, I'm talking about performances, I'm talking about editing, I'm talking about pacing. It, 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 it's really a, a rogue film in the way that you could not make it today, uh, not necessarily just because of context, but everything surrounding it. I adore this feature. Um, is it Uncut Gem? Of course it is. And the only reason why I, th- I think I would even put it like that is because of its box office, which the only reason I can think of that is because of its running time. But again, it's justified. There are things wrong with it, in my opinion. There's, there's not wrong with it, but there are issues present. But it's such a, 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 a it's such an interesting time to have in, in, a, in an auditorium to sit down and reflect and watch the manifestation of grief being put forward in, in, a, in, a, in a film that perhaps hasn't done justice to it since then, aside from perhaps John Wick, just 10 years. Well, as, we, as we've established, John Wick doesn't even... Yeah. It doesn't even touch upon the moral... Very different movies. I know. I mean, in terms of theme, though, like, they both do touch on like grief in a very True. interesting True. way. 
So yeah, yeah this is a masterpiece of work. <laughs> I utterly adore it. Yeah, it's a, I I can't I can't agree more. And by the way, I just I, I I still remember reading I think a review from for Taken Three that on Red on Letterbox which made made me laugh was Taken Three makes Taken Two look like Taken, right? Um, <laughs> which is quite fun. And I'm just thinking to myself, Taken no John Wick John Wick makes Taken look like Man on Fire. <laughs> You've uh, just reminded me about something I forgot to mention. I put it in my notes. I always fucking forget this. Um, do you want to quickly run through this because I'm I'm about to do my closing statement? No, no, of course. It's very, very quick. It's very quick, right? So apparently, um, Tony Scott said that he offered the role after Robert De Niro to Russell Crowe, right? And this is this is I'm going to quote this. So in an interview with the Sunday Times, Tony Scott revealed that he offered the role of Creasy to Russell Crowe, who turned it down. Tony Scott said, "I quote: I called Russell while he was on the set of Mastering Commander. I said so." Man on fire? Question mark. He said, "Listen, pal, have you seen Proof of Life?" I said, "Yes." He said, "I've been there, done that, turned it down." Mm-hmm. You, you, you think you think about I, again? That's that's probably taken out of context. It's more so said in jest. But you talk about an actor who missed the chance to really, really touch on on a nerve of thing, and also as well. I think, be, um, no, I'm, I'm going to be very brief. I do apologize. No, no, but then this would this would be. If he had done this, having done Proof of Life, then this would be a different film and critics would probably hate it even more. It's like, oh, he's doing the same shtick again. I completely agree, but I think him being on on a very intimate relationship with with, um, Ridley Scott, giving him his bread in in cinema with Gladiator, I think it will ultimately eat away at him that he never got to work with Turner. Yeah, I suppose. I think, so. I, I think that'd be a massive thing where you'll look back on that and think. And then I think Tony would be accused of stealing from his brother. Yeah, again, with like Lisa oh, Gerard, yeah. and then the Giannini dude. It's just ah, oh, I, I, yeah, I can, I can, no, I, I can I spot all the pundits going like going nuts over this on the blogosphere. Just fucking disgusting. Before I've said it before, you 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 need to give the flowers to someone when they're still alive, and Tony Scott never got that. Yep. Yep, that's that's pretty much the gist of it. I mean, I, I totally agree that this is. I mean, there there are films that Tony Scott directed that I, I like much more, but I think Man on Fire would be his most complete and more most mature film ever. Like he may this may not be the most entertaining film of his, but it's the, the it's the deepest, it's the most mature, it's the most um, elegant in a way. And it's the most challenging to the viewer, I'd say. Most of his stuff is is easy on the uptake. It's 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 great entertainment that you can just. That's how I how I love his films because they are just so easy to digest and and beautiful to look at. And then this one stays with you. This one stays, and then that's why I think that's that's why I think my top five top Tony Scott films has to be revised. Um, so yeah, definitely a gem. So how about we quickly go through our top threes? Nick, do you want to go first? How about you go first? Yay. Well, starting with the best, right? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Top three. So number three, we mentioned it during the conversation. I think all three of those moments. Yeah, we did mention all three of the conversation. But number three is the meeting after the the swimming race. Uh, when it's Chrissy, Lupita, Rayburn and his wife together, just talking and having a good time, having a laugh. It's it's tender. It, it encapsulates everything that makes the first 
act of the movie so powerful so so engaging so compelling just it's 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 great it's it's a great human moment preceding the madness that will arise after the kidnapping um the second scene is when he nearly kills himself with a bullet the way it's put together again like the sound editing Denzel's performance playing with the gun just drinking and drinking more and more it's fantastic and lastly it's without a doubt for me it's the kidnapping scene just it's it's perfection i i honestly think that's a perfect scene i must have watched that alone a dozen in the past few days just looking at it there's someone who made a, a lovely breakdown on youtube of each moment of the scene how it's edited how the sound is used the performances the visuals the callbacks like crazy shooting the gun in the air just like for the swimming match but she jolts which is already a bad omen for things to come you know she's not going to be ready for anything that's happening it's just oh that's cinema <laughs> that scene is cinema i love it awesome uh, jack your top 3 come um, on easy peasy uh, first and foremost um the ending absolutely emotionally draining brutal expertly short it breathes it has air it has fluidity to it it has pause it has reflection it really puts the audience through the emotional engulfment of what happens to that character um secondly i think the 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 relationship between washington and fanning is electric the, the how how that is growth on screen how how it looks beautiful the reflection the the the, the brooding nature of philosophy that's brought forward there how it builds warm Builds the other yin and yang, exceptional. Um, thirdly, let me think. I really like, I like, like I said, I really like Lisa Gerard. I like, I like the score and everything like that. Um, but the one thing I genuinely want to put forward is that I think Tony Scott here is actually on the amount of. How do I put this? I think Tony Scott puts forward his magnum opus in a way that he's firing on every cylinder. The editing is perfect. The dialogue here is perfect. The direction is perfect. The sound design is perfect. The editing is perfect. He is a man, a master of his craft, and he, and he curates an epic of proportions and makes it intimate. It's, it's so hard to do. I think he does it with, with just sheer ease. And I can't think of a more positive thing to weigh up the film as that. Amazing. You know, when when I come to these things, I always have more things listed just in case you know, to avoid um, repeating myself, so that we can just have more things for people to listen to as well, so that so we don't just don't go through all the same three things because it's, it's amazing. Because there's honestly like a million things you can pick out from from this film that are just amazing. So I'll I'll concentrate on one thing: moments of levity between Dakota Fanning and Des. Like in terms, the, the chemistry is amazing, but there's the concubine talk. And then especially, um, or like when he teaches her how to swim, but the but how he tells her that he, she needs to belch while having a piano lesson is just a be- beautiful moment of levity, like a calm before the storm. It's just actually perfectly inserted into the film. And another one, and I was just thinking to myself, what? So it, let's just say it will be a tie between the the symmetry of the bullet. Uh, not working for Denzel Washington and working for Sam Ramos then actually just elevates the whole film into the sort of mystical sort of plane of analysis. It kind of makes the whole thing more like much smarter than 
you'd ever give it credit for because then just no longer becomes no longer is just a revenge through it's a it's a highly mystical metaphorical sort of experience of it's just amazing um but then i would have to repeat myself because i have to say because i, I could say oh yeah well there's these nuances between i don't, I don't care so the absolute best standout thing scene that i written written down first was the ending of the film uh the life for life sequence which also plays into the religious allegory when you know like um keeps grasps the sort of saint jude little medallion that he got from dakota fanning's character and then just goes in there into an uncertain future that you can only expect it's going to be terrible for him uh, which is a bittersweet ending on one hand because you you know that she's safe but you, you only expect that he's going to well be subjected to hell on earth as prize for this it's it's a beautiful scene and actually well did make me cry so there's that so you know these are my top three um so bo- bottom three moments uh, like this is gonna be challenged I'm, I'm not accepting any cop-outs by the way so top the bottom three moments has to be three. Oh, it's three three don't worry <laughs> um number three is the opening scene i think it's unnecessary i felt like that the first time around i felt i feel i felt that even more re-watching the film now just you know, oh, some someone's kidnapped and uh, ransom money, and they're crying. And the freeway is like, oh, every day in Mexico City, five thousand people are kidnapped. <laughs> it's like it's beginning like, to unhinged. <laughs> yes. Well, no, no, no. I like the beginning of unhinged. This was I, I didn't. It's just kind of like, yeah, it's setting up the the context, this, this place, but it doesn't really work for me. It's kind of like, ah, we don't need it. Just go to Creasy. Go to Creasy. We get it. Mexico City is not a fun place to be in, most from generally speaking. Um, number two, it's probably a pet peeve, but Denzel in the club with the bandana looks ridiculous. But did <laughs> you notice this... he, he's the only black person in, in the entire film, right? Yes. Only, also but... in the club. <laughs> just, I just, again, like watching it just makes me laugh the first time it comes on screen, just with this bandana. The son like of shotgun. It's not my favorite outfit in the movie. I, I prefer it when he's bearded in the beginning. Should have kept that longer, honestly. Um, and lastly, the final text. We've mentioned that already, but just we don't need <laughs> the date. We don't need to thank you to Mexico City. <laughs> just the, it's a one two punch. To just and it's just the la- literally the last things you see in the movie before the end credits. It just it just takes me out of it, which is unfortunate. But again, all three of those are kind of nitpicks. None of them are awful or, or movie breaking. It's hard to pick. It's really really hard to pick. Yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna nitpick as well. But I think I'm gonna pick something you've already said. I'll start with the easy ones. I also am not a fan of the Giancarlo Giannina ending to it. I think it's so necessary. And the, and the fact that you, you said earlier, uh, Jacob, about um, where <laughs> John Creasy dies, the, the, the dates and stuff like that, it just gives me unbreakable vibes where I'm like, I just, I don't, I don't need to have that to reassess that this is reality when it's quite fully fiction. I, it, just, it just, it also, it ends on such like a, a really weird note. Like it, it feels like excessively too long at that point where, you have a really good poignant finale, emotional, really immersive, and then bang, we just cut to like a white screen. It's like, whoa, really? Um, 
the other the other issue I've got is that I think Mickey Rock's character is just genuinely redundant. Why is that Mickey Rock? It could be played by anybody. The fact that it's Mickey Rock and we have absolutely no screen time with him, for him to be killed and beheaded, which the scene of that is it's literally been edited out as well. It was shot where they decapitate him and he's in his pool. I was like, really? Are we, are we, you've, you've shown so much violence. And for a scene that's going to be 45 seconds long, let's give some justification to that character's actions. A death off screen, specifically when the film consciously showcases on-screen death to the point where there's only one where the film cuts away, probably because of its emotional ambiguities, obviously, the, uh, the, the, the Ramos father by Mark Antony. But even then, we still see, um, you know, the gripping nature of the, like the reality of what that's caused and the, the effect of it. Mickey Rocks just feels redundant. Just feels like excessively violent, and then it's literally over. Um, the, the third one, I'm not. I'm absolutely slightly struggling about, and I think it's going to be like a, a larger issue. But I still think that that word jarring about the edit is still in my mind. It's still conscious. It feels like there's so much being edited out here to create a narrative. To it, like it jumps from A to D, and just forgets about B and C. And granted, right, I fully appreciate that we don't need to know about B and C, but it feels so jarring narratively, where we have him with Rayburn, and all of a sudden we're at the car. I'm like, how did we get here? And another tidbit as well is like when the fact we goes, you know, you're so good. What are you doing this for? And he goes, I drink. Like, you just don't want this job. Like you can tell straight away. I feel that's like a, a, a not very really an organic way to sort of create that relationship. The issue he has with addiction. I feel like if we would that would have come, let's say more on a more private, intimate level, it would work more effectively. But granted, it does work in the context of the show that he doesn't give a shit. Those are my those are my bottom three. Like Nick said, it's very difficult because I think this film's very good. Um, oh, well, you said it's a magnum opus. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, well, so... I'm, trying to, I'm not trying to demand myself, but you know. I, like I said, I think I think if I if I went deeper, I could perhaps like you said, Jacob, you could probably tear this apart. I mean, the fact that he uses a bazooka in in that little tiny room and he doesn't evaporate the little parrot behind him, and the other two little mm. people are just there with skeletons. And the little abuelo and abuela are like, oh yeah, we're gonna have a conversation with him as well. <laughs> yeah, and that parrot releases is dead as well. There's no way it's gonna get get very far. I mean, just the the, the toxins of the atmosphere. The pollution, that little parrot, he just killed it. So imagine, it. like, he fires the bazooka, and in the back, he just makes an absolute fucking shit show of their kitchen. Well, that's what that's that's, that's <laughs> what he would have done. This, like, the, the cage would be black, and then there would be like literally just bones of that little tiny parrot there. And, like, be, like, that'd be actually quite a good relief. That'd be like a the dates appear on screen, <laughs> and then you have like, like, all, all, like, all these old people covered in suit. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely a missed opportunity there. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I did mention the top threes as well. That there's two things I wanted to mention we didn't touch. Is Chris, Christopher Walken's an absolute standout. Like, it, like in mm. 2004, you wouldn't see him being that serious. He was already in this parody of himself, right? Mode, but he's genuinely amazing to 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 watch. And then also there's like these one-liners. This film has so many good one-liners. Like the fear holds no, well, the gunshot holds no fear. Oh, he, his his art is deaf, and he's about to paint his masterpiece. Or yeah, something like so it's a great line. Yeah, like... that 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 scene where Creasy rings him up in the middle of the night, drunk, mm-hmm. and and he's he's there, he's like, I'm watching TV, and then he's like, he's like, 
And he's, but he, he smirks. He says, is, that, he goes, is everything all, all right? And Chris says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, okay. And he smiles. He knows that, like, you could you could probably say that, that Raven plays like the archangel, very much what David Thewlis plays in Kingdom of Heaven. He's like, like, he, like he's a mystical the, um, creature. He's like the um, guardian angel, right? Yes. Um, but then, yeah, and then... I'm I'm here to arrange oh. a meeting, <laughs> but he's he he tones it down, he tones it down in here. It's very you know. But anyway, it's very much it is it's deer hunter esque. It's like he sits there and he he does these little nuanced movements, like that little smirk. I was like, he loved he loves Creaser and he and he knows everything will be okay. I know why that is because most most scenes with Christopher Walken were probably improvised, so he didn't have like words on the page. To if you move, if you watch that to scene, move yeah, punctuation yeah. signs somewhere else, so it's if like... you if you watch that scene again, he constantly looks at the corner of his eye, like he looks over to the camera and, and Tona. If you watch mm-hmm. the scene where he's on the phone, you'll look over loads of times to where the camera is. Mm-hmm. You you definitely had lived. Oh, <laughs> did you hit your head? <laughs> Walking? Who? <laughs> I like. Have you ever seen him in um, Mouse Hunt? No, no, I haven't seen oh, Mouse Hunter. Probably... He goes, rats? Ah. He goes, horse? I didn't eat it. <laughs> he goes, he goes, this mouse, like, takes him through all the floorboards and he comes out of this, like, abandoned house, Nathan Lane and Lee Evans go, uh, they, they, they hire, well, they, they inherit it and, he, and he's, like, going all crazy and he has this stick between his teeth because he's got, he's like, he's, like, natting like a mouse and he goes, horse? I won't eat it. I don't know. He peeked in Bat- Batman Returns with his, you know, like, point is, she does it again. Drop her, <laughs> or drop her from a higher window. Just... Oh! <laughs> anyway, bottom three. I need to do, need to do this and, and close this. Bottom three. Um, one thing, it's a bit much, is when he tortures the police chief and then he gives him a suppository plastic bomb. Unneeded, like I'm like, what? And then and actually has a countdown. Would that have worked with you with the original ending? Because the C4 goes back into a, a cyclical oh, would, would have made it even would have made it even worse. Because like, oh no, it's oh it's look, it's cute and symmetrical. Fuck off. <laughs> it's cute uh, and symmetrical. <laughs> um, <laughs> the um, I don't know. Okay. I could, I could, I could go serious one and like get on serious. Like on serious one would be like, whatever, what the fuck happened to the dog? <laughs> I was gonna say that as a describe. But the uh, serious one is there's a few moments in the film where something towards the ending, like, as though like the story is looking forward to this beautiful sort of well, this beautiful sort of wrap up ending so they kind of rush things up and there's this sort of like the police is on their tail they're like listening on everything that happens to the guy's brother and they don't intervene it's just like it's it's there's like 10 minutes of something that's been rushed to kind of just hurry things along um so that so that's a serious one and the absolute standout for me is the absolute the, the very ending when they think Mexico City and then you see Creasy <laughs> sort of dates when he dies and then the next a week later the voice dies it's just ah oh, just like keep it in your pants like no 
because yeah when as i said like you, you could take it apart and just have a laugh at the expense of the guy's shrine in the house and like with all these candles this house should have burned down like months ago like, massive fire hazard especially, especially with the curtains flying flying everywhere it's just uh, you know it's just just it's just dangerous behavior like this is no no <laughs> uh but yeah so these are my top three like the absolute standout is the <laughs> <laughs> after two and a half hours of like bashing Mexico City as the sort of cesspool of kidnappers and gangsters and cartel members, thanks Mexico City burritos are amazing. <laughs> it's just just too much. Like, but I kind of have a thing that this is not Tony Scott's decision. This is like Fox going like we kind of need to put a positive spin on this. Yes. <laughs> but to I think Jack, did you mention this? Um. Because then the, another piece of the sort of thing being uh, hurried up, so is the sort of Mickey Rourke dying scene, mm-hmm. when you realize this is like a forty-five seconds added, and it's like, why did you cut it out of our two and a half hour runtime? Uh, to me, this is to avoid the NC seventeen. It's already it's already is. What NC seventeen? Yeah, it's nineteen. Oh. oh, wasn't it, wasn't it R rated in America? Was R rated? Mowgli. I don't know. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be able to stop doing that now. I think it was for everyone. Talk like you. Walk like you. Because if it oh, was R rating, yeah, yeah, so it was R rated. Because if it was NC seventeen, this wouldn't um may have made hundred fifty million dollars. No, no chance in hell. Yeah, so yeah, it's I love this was for everyone. DB and that's my that's my bible. So it's got to be <laughs> it's basically like the equivalent of a PG. You're in Italy. What R rating? No, Man on Fire. It has the T for everyone. Uh, no wonder your country's fucked up. It? <laughs> I'm joking. It's true. I look like I'm part of Fallout boy with oh, my hair like this. It's 18 in, in the UK, right? Yeah, Yeah, I thought it was. Don't undermine me again. No, it's 18 in, in, in our neck of the woods, but then Americans are weird. right? So what is, what is it in America? I think it it's R-rated. No, it could be NC-17, sure. I'm looking at do you think that's also a reason why there's no sex scene then? Because it does pull away when it gets to the... I think so, because I think this would have been too much. Oh. <laughs> and then, but, but, and, but I have to say, like, on my sort of extended list of top, uh, of top elements was the way Christopher Walken licks his fingers. <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's very sensual, isn't it? Obey me! <laughs> it's just like when he talks about his death being his mother and he just he just licks his fingers. It's amazing. <laughs> it's just makes me hungry. I don't know, that makes you hungry? Thinking <laughs> about the finger licking in KFC. You do you do like that. You've got a weird fetish for people eating to further, yeah. Oh, you, you, in, sorry, in I suppose film, you're, you're a fan of The Return of the King when they, uh, the guy oh, eats the like John cranberries. Like, John Noble's eating tomato. It pops out. Yeah, it's yeah, just, just gross. bleeding by lace, basically. I turn it off by that point. I've already seen enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to find a DVD cover of Man of Fire. DVD cover. Well, a blue, oh, sorry, a Blu-ray. Sorry. For no, for the for the R for the rating. That one. Yeah, it's an eight. I want to know what the R rating is. Yeah, that's oh. IMDb says it as well. Yeah. No, I can't find it. Yeah, I think it's, it's R rating. I rated United States R. There you go. Because yeah, it made 150 million dollars. NC 17 films are not even are, are, are never making this much money. It's an R in Spain. 
Um, it's a 14 in Peru, though. Oh. We'll have to go, we'll have to go and a 12 in Czechia. 12? Oh. <laughs> Jesus, really? Yes. That's well. like Italy. We'll take it. Yeah. 12 anyway. in France as well. Right. I'm on that lost. note, on, on, <laughs> on that note, Man on Fire is available to rent or buy from the usual suspects, and it can be streamed in the UK on Amazon Prime. I don't think it's available to stream in the US, so you're out of luck. It's on Tubi. What? It's it's on... Not, what do you mean it's not available to stream anywhere? In, I mean, you can rent it, but you, I don't think it's like if you subscribe to Netflix, you'll get it. Streaming on is it Tubi. On Prime? It's on Prime in the in the UK. Yes. Um. It also has a physical release, both DVD and Blu-ray. I'm not sure if it has a 4K, so if it so it's perfectly accessible for you to watch it at your leisure, and you should. Um, so I think this is it for this episode of the Uncut Gems podcast. So how how can we find you all on social media, and where can we find your stuff, Nick? Where can we find you? You can follow me on Twitter at nickyra97 and on Letterboxd, just Nicola Brasso. And you can watch my short films and videos on YouTube and Vimeo at Enjoy the Movies. Read all of my stuff on Clapper and Book for Thought. And tune in to the first episode of Death by Adaptation, the new Clapper podcast. It's monthly. We talk about movies and books, adaptations, all that good stuff. And there's a new episode coming. And there's a new episode with lots of death coming out later this month. Can I, can I just say, first and foremost, I apologise yep. for the noises and the edit of my chair because it sounds like a gunshot goes off every time I want to move. It's fine. My wife kept coughing th- all, all throughout me <laughs> here. Because <laughs> um, she, was, she was watching Love Island and then she was just every now and again, she goes like... I'd be allergic to that bullshit as well. To be fair, <laughs> um, you can find me at both Letterboxd and Twitter with the username at Sharp. Okay, um, awesome. Uh, you can find me at Talk About Film on Twitter and uh, Jakub Flash on Letterboxd. You can find my stuff on flashonfilm.com. You can find all our stuff on Clapper at www.clapperltd.co.uk. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at UncutJobsPod. So make sure to follow, like, retweet our stuff. It helps. Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can also send us an email at uncutgemspod at gmail.com so you can find your way to sound off about Man on Fire and just talk, tell us about how much of a masterpiece it is this way. I'm not accepting any any negative criticism on Man on Fire, I'm sorry. Um, uh, so, also you can support the show with a one-off donation over uh, by buying us a coffee over at coffee.com co-fi dot com slash pod and you can also subscribe to our patreon over at patreon.com slash ltd where for two bucks a month you'll get two monthly podcasts one classic clappercast one not classic clappercast something else other debates or whatever this this month we've done um at Tony's cut red mini retrospective so get on that two bucks is not is not much money but you know um we we produce con- great content for you to listen to hey um, you can also listen to Clappercast at Clapper Podcast on Twitter, and you'll find links over there. And as Nick said, also uh, Def, Ad- Def by Adaptation at uh, Def Adaptation on Twitter. You can find links over there. So that completes our CPU Clappercast or Clapper's podcast universe. Um, sort of. Anyway, that's it for 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 tonight. Let's so be sure to tune in. Next week, when we will be pausing our Jack takeover of the show for one week, as we are going to be marking. So yeah, that's what we're, do- what we're doing. That was Jack's choice, Man on Fire. 
Uh, so we're, thanks for we're, bringing that one up. There you go. Because you know, um, what we'll be doing, we'll, mar- we'll be marking Nick's birthday. And so I'm kind of trying to establish a bit of a tradition in here with people hey. uh, being able to dictate what we do on, on their birthdays. So, you know, we, you know, Nick is a massive cinephile. He loves Fritz Lang and then early expressionism. He loves like all sorts of experimental stuff. And then he gets really deep into like French art house stuff. So therefore we're going to be talking about John Woo's Mission Impossible <laughs> 2. <laughs> um, so it's um, proper art house right there. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so stay tuned for that. It's going to be amazing. And for now, I hope you have a fabulous day. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye.